being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong all right today i'm joined by fergal from his podcast the kingless generation a podcast on the deep history of class struggle paleo parapolitics and the demonology of capital it's a mouthful isn't it I know. I like it, though. I like <laughs> the turns of phrase. You can find him on Twitter at Irregnata, which I'll put in the notes. Uh, how are you doing today, Fergal? Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I just enjoyed my uh, morning bike ride over here uh, to my, my office. I am a professor of Japanese literature at a sleepy little university in Tokyo. And during the pandemic, I've gotten into this habit of biking. And uh, I can't recommend it enough, getting some fresh air mm -hmm. uh, right during the lockdowns. There was a nice combination here of like lockdowns and public health measures. Uh, we still sort of have a lot of the post-war uh, welfare state, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, there, were, there weren't harsh uh, restrictions on freedom of movement and freedom of assembly and things such as we've seen uh, elsewhere. Right. But then, uh, so the other day though, mm -hmm. so I was just, um, I've maybe I should say first, I've always, I've really enjoyed listening to your Japan episodes. Thank you. Right. And it's been wonderful as a, as a specialist, uh, you know, I'm a specialist in a certain period, right. And it's more kind of late medieval, uh, early Edo is my stomping grounds. And so I have all these books, either on my own bookshelf or elsewhere and like ready to read them, but I never do. So it's wonderful to get through. And then, you know, with all the other uh, cases that you have lined up, it's really wonderful to sort of follow the money mm -hmm. in a way that uh, I will say even specialists uh, never quite do. Right. It's a very different narrative of that period. Yeah, no, it is very fun to like, wander into things that like for some reason and you can chalk it up to a bunch of different things like uh <laughs> people who <laughs> should be yeah no i i, I uh, take your praise thank you very much <laughs> magical thing not trying to go all anti-academic because i legitimately don't yeah. actually have a gripe against academics <laughs> I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but it's a magical thing when you can just hit a kind of sweet spot of being just barely outside your comfort zone. Right. It's just, mm -hmm. uh, and you're just, yeah, maybe saying something, maybe you're getting into dangerous territory and you're going to say something wrong and you're going to embarrass yourself. And, you know, I'm doing this all the time, getting into, uh, you know, basically communist podcasting uh, mm -hmm. for, as a pre-modernist literature scholar it's kind of like what do i have to say you know yeah i mean pre pre-modernism is like already rough ground for marxist studies in the first place you know i'm i'm certain you know what i'm talking right. about <laughs> that's the image you know i mean i i think um a, a gabriel rockhill kind of intervention is is warranted there too of course you know if you really there are the people who talk about the 5000 year world system and the 500 year world system and uh that's the sort of thing that got me into doing my podcast you know reading um against the grain the dawn of everything 
uh, even though those writers themselves are just kind of anarchist liberals at the end of the day, mm-hmm. uh, there's definitely something there. And I think we'll, we'll get into, um, there is then further the archaeology pill, uh, the Hayden pill that, you, that I'm kind <laughs> of on at the moment. And I'm, I'm resolving it. It's moving through my veins and through my system. And it's yeah. affecting, changing all my RNA <laughs> at the moment. Let me, let me ask you, you this, though. Let me ask yeah. you before we get too far afield. So, huh. Tale of Genji, is that the period yeah. that you specialize in? Bit later. So that is kind of the height of the Heian court, which mm. is a feudal... Uh, you know, feudal mode of production kind of classic. There's a there's a moment where he gets exiled from the capital to the shore at Suma. And I think it's the beginning of the Suma chapter. And it's one of my favorite class struggle moments there because he uh, the, he gets a messenger from the his the capital, his main wife, right? Murasaki. And uh, the the uh, it's a there's a horrible typhoon and he's feeling horrible that he's exiled from the capital and so on. And the messenger just struggles in soaking wet and barely recognizable. And Genji looked at the man whom uh, in any normal context, he would have swept from his path thinking, what is this a human being or what? (laughs) Uh, But the warm rush of feeling that Genji felt for the man uh, brought home to him how low his spirits had sunk and he felt deeply ashamed of himself. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. So that that is uh, about one thousand, right? Um, yeah. So I get more into, and then you have a breakdown about eleven eighty four. Uh, we'll say twelve hundred, and then from twelve hundred to sixteen hundred, you have what are known as the Middle Ages in Japan, and it's it's much more anarchic, much more you know, like periods of breakdown all over the world. You actually begin to see some really nice possibilities. Uh, people's lifespans tend to increase. Uh, the common people are not being squeezed as hard. In fact, mm-hmm. that's what we learn from archaeology and uh, anthropology, which is usually the opposite of what the chronicles always say. Right, the people who restore order sort of are always like, "Oh, isn't it good that we got back to civilization and uh, <laughs> peace and stability?" But you know, that's uh, peace and stability and- means taking most of the rice away. <laughs> That is correct. And you see that in the intermediate periods of Egypt, and you see it uh, from the, the Shang to the Zhou in ancient China, right? All over the world. Oh, yeah. So I, I was biking, right? Um, I, I'm, a, I'm totally like, I never get to the point and I go all over the place. <laughs> it's all good. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is just my... Um, so I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. <laughs> Um, we were talking before this, Jimmy is a very scripted, very plan. He's a planner. Um, if you're a fan, you know this and you love the, the organization and I definitely benefit. Uh, so I was riding my bike and I saw, I go by, uh, the headquarters of Kodansha, which is one of the major publishers. And, uh, they had a big banner up celebrating a million sold of a manga. Mm, It's a comic book. Right. And there's a cycle kind of things become comic books and they're serialized in weeklies. And then they come out with collected books of that, just that one manga later. And then they might get made into anime for TV and then they might get made into movies and so on. Can I just say that feels like a not to like, you know, romanticize that, but it feels like a more natural 
system than what we have over here where it's just like comic books almost as a subterranean thing and then now we are stuck in like a 20 year period where it's nothing but comic book movies they oh yeah yeah what mm. like i wish there was like more of like a normal escalator situation you know what happened with comic books in america that's something i always, i never knew no- enough about to really think about it's so weird no there used to be a big thing right and there are certain things that uh, there were really brilliant ones like Crazy Cat or something, right? And uh, then it gets sort of narrowed down to Marvel type stuff and it's extremely propagandistic during World War II. But in, is it the post-war that comic books are just left by the wayside? Well, it is. But then a lot of the really inventive stuff happens in that post-war period. So like, I know that like a lot of the cherished like plots and a lot of the characters and honestly some really trippy weird uh actually inventive science fiction themes are suddenly percolating Mm -hmm. and then it's only more in like the 80s that like things get stupider and then like from that point on it's like more and more just in being made into movies right right yeah comic books are always kind of there but but then yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't have the same kind of deep cultural re- resonance here. Whenever museums or uh, which museum attendance is actually very high in Japan, people mm-hmm. people do go. But when they're trying to sort of sell ancient, like medieval Japanese uh, picture books, we'd say picture storybooks with illustrated illustrations to uh, young audiences they always say oh this is the ancestor of manga this shows the (laughs) unchanging japanese character uh in this instance right (laughs) Uh, actually the the tale of genji scrolls are a really interesting example of that from the early mid it's an early medieval production but one of the earliest extant uh illustrated picture scrolls is of the tale of genji and they were restored and photographed with all kinds of ultraviolet and infrared uh, photography. And they created a really kind of pristine modern reproduction of it and stuff. And that whole exhibition was really steeped in a lot of uh, nationalist ideology people were pointing out. Interesting. I mean, I could see that. Yeah. I read the tale of Genji in a uh, college class and it really Mm -hmm. blew my mind. I think I, I think I read one of the, uh, I guess technically it's an abridgment, right? Because isn't it super, super long? Mm-hmm. It is a thousand and a half pages, maybe. Yeah, I think the uh, one I read the... was like 500 pages or something. Well, that, okay. So would that have been the Royal Tyler, though? I think so. I think that's the one that exists in an abridged version. Well, that's the mm-hmm. best translation. Definitely. It goes, it preserves all the twists and turns of the long, long sentences right yeah i definitely recall that <laughs> and so i i loved reading it i thought it was very interesting oh cool yeah um that the japanese language at that time uh you know pronouns are introduced kind of indo-european pronouns he she i you uh in the modern period right and that becomes fairly standard now but even so you can kind of project subjectivity into any given word and use it like I or you or uh, 
they don't even now necessarily have the rigid, you know, coordinates of the Cartesian world, you know, and uh, so what you have instead are honorifics and you have mm. to kind of actually know who is the most important person in the room and the second most and the third most and the level of honorific that is on each verb or, or noun will tell you who's being spoken about. And there's there won't be a yeah. name for pages and pages. <laughs> you have to like just follow. <laughs> well, it's funny it's you bring that yeah. up because the honorific thing, like, well, my wife's learning Japanese, albeit mm. you know somewhat slowly. But like, I was I remember learning first about the honorifics, like from that movie Battle Royale. I don't know if you recall that. Oh movie. yeah, and like I, there's that a, was one of the first Japanese movies I ever saw. Oh Back really? In college, yeah. Well, okay. You you probably recall then in the scene at the lighthouse, right? They use honorifics to like. I mean, okay, for the listeners, it's a basically a classic no, Fortnite I situation. I don't remember that. Well, yeah. it's a classic Fortnite situation, right? So teenagers have to kill each other for some contrived 1984 bullshit reason. Okay, that's all you right. need to know. So in the future, there... everybody does like yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's this lighthouse scene where like these teenagers are trying to survive but they're like worried that they might kill each other because everything is trying to get them to do that and so like they someone pointed out that it's almost impossible to translate that scene because they use honorifics and they use different ones as the paranoia starts to get them ready to kill each other and like you there's just like no way to translate that honestly or like it's very hard I guess uh, I would say I guess I have to watch that again I don't I, I don't remember that in particular yeah mm-hmm. I just remember the basic scenario is that it's kind of is it like Hunger Games it's, I've never seen Hunger Games yeah it's like a Hunger Games thing yeah yeah it's basically like and it at the time it was really ahead of its time I think uh, the the breakdown of the social welfare system and the neoliberalization of Japan was just beginning if anything so yeah and so like taking that idea of like we're going to pit people against each other and <laughs> taking it to be like right. the most literal interpretation possible the abstract fear that that you actually do feel as a high schooler getting ready for the job market getting ready for a society and so on mm-hmm. exactly and yeah that's what it's kind of about um, so I was r- biking past Kodansha and they mm-hmm. have this big banner up for a manga that is called uh, Manshu Ahen Squaddo, which would be uh, Manchuria Opium Squad. And as a loyal Jimmy Fallon Gong listener, I, I was just <laughs> I was floored. So I thought, oh, I got to find out what is this, you know, because I'm not into the I'm not an anime weeb. I'm more of a um, <laughs> more of a samurais and and uh jesuits weeb uh so um what so you're more into kurosawa things of this nature i love yeah i loved that i mean i don't get to watch movies or Mm. comic books at all these days but fair um for similar reasons that i don't read uh, modern history and so on um but yeah uh so i saw this and my first thought was oh um Okay, this has got to be some kind of propaganda. The only question is what kind? What's the angle? <laughs> right. So my mm-hmm. first thought is, is it a bunch of plucky cops in colonial Manchuria trying to catch the bad Chinese people who are totally the ones 
uh, dealing the opium. And I got a hold of the first episode and paged through a couple more. And it turns out it's a little bit more nuanced than that. It, it's, it's basically Breaking Bad set in colonial Manchuria. So it's actually a mm. bunch of plucky Japanese colonists working hard to build uh, farm cooperatives on the frontier in, in uh, Manchuria and unite all the races of Asia uh, <laughs> and create the model, the model community that will be spread across China as well, eventually. And uh, there are opening shots. Well, so the opening moment is actually the empress, the last empress of China was a legendary beauty and she was elegant and refined. And, but she died in a pile of her own excrement and it's got her just, you know, naked and sort of twitching on the floor of a cell saying, I, she's saying some ridiculous kind of line, like I miss my husband or something, <laughs> something a woman would totally be thinking at that moment. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, you know, the kind of thing women say, uh, and, uh, it says the actual ruler of Manchuria, colonial Manchuria, was this guy, the king of the emperor of opium. And it shows this main character. And, and then we get his origin story. And his origin story is that he's on the frontier in Manchuria doing basically American style settler colonialism, uh, maybe a bit more organized. You know, we see like actually kind of a worker co-op on the yeah. frontier there some degree of yeah. central planning in the u.s it was mainly like through like basically like cavalry bases spotted all over the mm. old west basically mm -hmm. well i think the military network is in there first as well and that becomes mm -hmm. i mean that's what that's the crucial fact that's actually missing from this um uh well not the military network but it's yeah so uh, you know we we're in this, we get introduced to this guy and his family and his mother is sick with something and uh, she's sick and sicker and sicker and the doctor's bills build up. And one day a shifty old Chinese man uh, talks to him and says, Hey, Sonny, you ever heard of this thing called opium? <laughs> and uh, he opens a secret gate and he shows him a field of literal opium poppies in fucking northeast china is this so first the first thing to check is it, did that ever happen opium literally grown in manchuria because wait a minute the yeah i might actually have a little bit about that yeah no because apparently they did produce opium before the japanese were there it's just that they produced hmm. much much less of it oh i see or uh, not opium, I should say. They produce poppies, right? Which have various uses. Okay. And oh, so you can produce them. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, that's the other thing too. It is weird, right? We were both talking about how mm. we're like, is that even the right climate for like poppies? Yeah. But then again, Afghanistan is like kind of uh, mm. similar in terms of like, it's not super hot, you know, like in certain places like more mountainous yeah i don't know exactly but it's that's well further south but uh 
there's quite a winter in in that area, right? Uh, and the call that was a big problem for the colonists. So yeah, well, if you say, see, you're the, this is why I need you here. That uh, I, I really this is one thing I really wanted to discuss with you right away is that uh, you have all the stats, right? And mm-hmm. what year of whatever. So, you know, the Chinese man introducing, and there's uh, the whole opening book of it seems to be the different main characters all getting into this opium trade in a Breaking Bad kind of way. I have a precious uh, family member who I love and I want to protect, and I have all the best motives in the world. Uh, And then these shifty Chinese people introduced me to uh, opium, right? (laughs) And it's all these downwardly mobile middle class, you know, exactly the kind of people that uh, the League of Blood and so on claimed to be acting in, on behalf of, right? Yeah. Uh, exactly the social base of Japanese fascism. Um, all these people <laughs> uh, turning, uh, despite their best intentions, to uh, this drug dealing. When, in fact, if you listen to Jimmy Fallon Gong, you will know that the entire colonial em- enterprise of Manchuria would not have been possible without dominance, Japanese dominance of the opium trade uh by by groups that were run by like the imperial family and the zybots and the uh army groups connected closely to these right yeah it was pretty much centrally planned by those groups (laughs) yeah yeah Right. So projecting that onto this middle class is like, yeah, no, that's insane. Like I just looked it up. So I guess there are a bunch of types of poppies. Right. But like it did say pretty much that they grow in Southeast Asia and they also grow in temperate areas. So Mm. I guess it does make sense because it's like, wait, Mm. like, why would something that you could grow in like Southeast Asia also, you know, like I never understood that, but I guess I guess you can. Yeah. All right. Well, so, but you know, what, what, like, what didn't, weren't there some numbers like 1920, it was, they're all in San Francisco and Honolulu and Shanghai. Right. And dominating some percentage of the the global opium trade. Oh yeah. I got some numbers here. I can go through them. So in Manchuria, right. In 1911, so like largely before Japan was like really a presence, uh, the region Manchuria produced less than 2,500 kilos of opium. Uh, 15 years later, once the Japanese, the Zaibatsus involved, you said Zaibat is the plural there. Uh, there's no plural or singular. It's just um, gotcha. Zai, those U's are, those U's are often not, pronounced super much so zybots mm, gotcha is, yeah is yeah fine. my wife yeah. was telling me that see she's mm. yeah okay so i can tell you sometimes you get you might be getting pronunciation tips yeah. yeah yeah no for sure i put in more effort than the average person but th- by no means Doesn't was matter. i still yeah 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 but i mean if a whole series on japan i want to like try a little bit um so 15 years after 1911, so what is that, like 1926-ish, uh, mm-hmm. after Japan had essentially taken over Manchuria more and more, mm-hmm. they were producing 36,000 kilos of opium per year. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time they seized all of Manchuria in 1932, they had 
tens of thousands of hectares all doing poppy production dozens of laboratories uh they were also starting to make morphine and heroin oh there you go okay mm-hmm. so this major manga right now that is being promoted clearly very much is because it's so popular you know um people little random little indie thing in in Japanese culture of all places doesn't just randomly get popular on its own strength. Certainly not now. It's all that is all so controlled. Everybody I know who's in like advertising or or whatever says that, oh God, everything is just scripted to the hilt, no matter what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, the in the wake of the nuclear disaster, people criticizing nuclear, which I don't know about so much, but um if somebody d- even like wore the wrong t-shirt that had an anti-nuke message or something the very next day they would never be invited on any other tv show ever again Mm. sort of thing so you know if it's that popular it's being pushed right uh at this moment when we're clearly being right i mean that was my take on the whole abe assassination too is that they're looking for the the next Zelensky. yeah no can i just say yeah. <laughs> your uh, episode on it and then your appearance on the farm and so forth oh it was phenomenal i was so excited to hear that oh thank you so much thank you so much i'm just a guy who happens to be here is about my only qualification but that's how it looks to me uh somebody said uh just yesterday uh the preparations for the abe funeral are looking more and more like a funeral for the ldp mm-hmm and that seems kind of right to me. That might be right. What's crazy to me is that I have no idea what is going to take its place, you know? Like, I don't I know, know right? Well, they keep pushing all these kind of um, actor, like gay nojin is, is a term that kind of means actor, entertainer, right? And they have these very carefully curated, you know, gay um, jimu show. They call them offices, like talent agencies, right? Like Johnny's is a big one. Oh, that's a great Jimmy Fallon gong topic. If everything mm. that's a uh, put that on that's on my wish list there. <laughs> so what? So are they Take getting politicians from these places? Yes, I think they well, are. There, there like been, a Zelensky thing, yeah. like you're saying. Oh man, it, yeah, yeah. I think that's what's coming. Um, a, a crazy theory that occurred to me the other day. That I'll just say, <laughs> it's this probably not going to happen. But if it did, it would be kind of picture perfect. There's a, just a huge earthquake in Taiwan, which, um, as we all know, the technology to artificially cause earthquakes uh, um, doesn't, it could not, not possibly <laughs> exist and be weaponized. Uh, but um, you know, that just happened. Suppose the the Japanese self defense forces go to Taiwan. Uh, on an aid mission there that's how they always have been like increased their media profile increased their presence in japanese society right um mm. like i often stress on my show one of the first things to to cut through a lot of the nonsense in japanese politics and and like the japanese communist party and their whole like protect article 9 thing is to realize that Article 9, the pacifist clause of the Constitution, Japan is, renounces military force as a means of settling international disputes. That was 
basically abolished by Japan's Supreme Court in like mm. 1948 or so. When at America's orders, the Japanese self-defense forces were established and they, they oh, ruled. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they ruled. Yeah. Yes, it violates the Constitution, but the Constitution is not as important as the status of forces agreement with America or AMPO, as it's known here. See, that's the biggest irony of all, like that. Yeah. So even though communists are basically internationalist, right? If you're not, it's it's a major problem oh, for your yeah. communist party. Not but the like, JCP. <laughs> but like, God. but like that is the irony in that the communists are the ones who are pointing out and trying to defend actual Japanese sovereignty <laughs> in in the sense <laughs> yeah, of like, yeah. you know, Article that's 9. That's true. Versus like yeah. this higher authority, which is basically a, just a treaty with the United States. That's right. And the LDP who strike all kinds of nationalist poses are actually the ones who are the most subservient to uh, American interests. And America yeah. says jump, they say how high. They love to like talk about, you know, <laughs> this like xenophobic talk, but then they constantly sell out Japan to like literally just u.s companies and you know not exclusively but like that's been you know us mostly mostly right favored nation in status or whatever mm-hmm. yeah i think um of course china does uh still i forget japan's foreign trade china is not is it a majority it, it might be close to half of japan's foreign trade is with china yeah. as well so the what you're seeing now is this complicated dance where you know um like well there's several pictures where like of like a dude or sometimes a lady at, at like a party sort of um holding forth and the person that they're talking to is just kind of like cringing right like it's that kind <laughs> of thing where um or it's not like that it's like the face is smiling and nodding but the feet are like moving away slowly inching away um <laughs> And America sees this and is kind of panicking and is like, somebody said, sort of making them step on fumier, which is a, a rich expression that comes from the Inquisition, the anti-Christian Inquisition, mm-hmm. right? And the early Edo, making, they have to step on a picture of Jesus uh, at, at New Year's every year to prove that you still uh, weren't Christian, right? It's kind of like that. <laughs> Maybe, in, I mean, auto de fe, you know, you, you, um, you have your... Uh, uh spanish connections you know out an auto da fe right you yeah. mm-hmm. public performance of faith that's definitely what's some of what's been happening you know set up the cdc set up a, a branch of the american cdc in japan that is over the all japanese uh public health services and tells them everything what to do that's supposed to be up and running pretty soon here i think hmm and the yeah the state funeral is going to happen at the budokan which is on the island the northern island of the the palace complex in the middle of tokyo Mm. it's really close to yasukuni as well if you want to talk about sacred geography what's that yasukuni shrine is the shrine to the war dead which abe often got in trouble for visiting um so it's actually right near that, that his funeral will, will take place. I so suppose that's fitting. 
<laughs> it is fitting. Yeah. It's like at the foot of Yasukuni, you, you can cross a, uh, an iron bridge across the highway to go to this. And usually there's like big anime idol concerts and stuff that happen there. Yeah, I was going to say, because I have watched Japanese wrestling before, and I feel like, they don't they have concerts around there and all that? Oh, yeah, there might be pro wrestling there, too. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a friend who's into Japanese pro wrestling, and I keep, I should probably, he keeps getting after me to go go to a match with him one time. I should try it's, a, it's a huge fun. time sink, but at least live, mm. it's pretty fun. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> So this is, you know, if you wanted, so, you know, your wife is studying Japanese, she could, you could read Manchuria Opium Squad with her mm -hmm. and do your own whole take on it. Yeah, that could be pretty cool. Because like, I remember, like, initially when I was doing this, you know, my Japanese series, and I anticipated going into like the modern era, I, it was a little ambitious, right? Mm -hmm. But like, I only did maybe half of what I initially planned, but like I thought that I would find manga or anime that matched what I was talking about, but there were really not that many for like Imperial Chicanery in Manchuria or, you know, what have you. Yeah, that would never happen. Not as many, at least not like on my radar, you know? The, you know, in like 1968 was the last time, or 71 or something is the last time that there was ever any kind of independent media that mm -hmm. would be going into things like that. I mean, it really shut down and it's all, uh, there's nothing out there that, that doesn't have a pretty extreme propaganda angle in my experience. Yeah, actually, since we're talking about it, like, you know how like, on twitter maybe or whatever online like yeah people really love to be like well you know like there's sort of an issue with leftists being killjoys right and like right <laughs> yes. so like one thing that's come up a bunch is like anime is actually pretty fascist right yeah and like that's that's one of those things where it's like it sounds absurd, but then it's not, but then it sounds absurd again, but then it's not like, it's almost mm -hmm. like different galaxy brain levels where it's like, no, it is actually. And then it is actually again. Yeah. No, I literally had uh, actually, so I, I had a student that brought me uh, the, maybe the biggest main essay on whatever, wherever, you know, saying that uh, attack on Titan was fascist. I think I've read that and one. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, is this, what, what do you think of this? Is this true? And I was like, yeah, that's fascist. Star Wars is fascist. Harry Potter is fascist. Uh, <laughs> so I just <laughs> go down the list. Um, yeah. I think I got, I think they agreed with me um, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, you point out some of those giants in Attack on Titan and you're like, okay, this is like probably mm. pretty fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, as always, it's mixed with this kind of ambivalence about the American relationship, which you always want to, which you love to see. So it's always kind of complicated. Uh, my followers on my Japanese Twitter account, right, mm -hmm. are the most advanced anyone gets is basically a Larushite. I think <laughs> yeah. like, that's like all that exists. You know, people are talking about the Zionists and... Um, there's this kind of thing and then there's 
Wait, oh, wait, wait, what's the what's the Japanese take on Zionists? That's that'd be interesting. Um, they basically just mean the the cabal, the, the elders of Zion, when mm. they say it. Um, it, it uh, you know, they'll criticize Israel Palestine as well, and say good things about that, but then they'll sort of turn around and you know say the reason why the U.S. Federal Reserve is not uh, part of the like, what do you call? It? I feel like I saw a term for that whole thing. There, and it seemed like a very useful term, but it it slipped through my fingers of my mind. And what was it describing? I wish I could. It was describing just in general the the right wing propaganda strategy of saying, uh, "Ah, leftist, you want to destroy the ruling class." Well, what if I told you that? Uh, the real way to destroy the ruling class is to give all power to the ruling class because actually <laughs> the uh all leftism all you know the whole idea of socialism is like you know the the academic book on this would be fire in the minds of men i've discovered mm. yeah it's this book that sort of goes through the birth of the left uh through maybe like you know your recent episodes on cathars and stuff mm. uh it's, it's that sort of milieu, you know, they go through, oh, this is the kind of, there's this kind of moment and you have all these cabals and stuff. And maybe that is like not quite as protocols-y, but, um, you know, it leads you in that kind of direction where it's like, actually, no, there's some kind of other real ruling class that, and you should really give all power to the ruling class that you can see with your own eyes. And that's the way to beat them, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe entryism or something. Entryism? Oh, see, now I thought that meant like when you uh, join DSA and like try to. Um, <laughs> well, that's what it originally meant. Push right? Joe Biden, push Joe Biden to the left. It's um, working so well. Oh, I see. Yeah, work within the system and so on. Yeah, that would be a liberal kind of. Yeah, um, that's one. Maybe that's yeah. That's on the same. That's a different train track on the same grid, isn't it? <laughs> like, yeah, we'll do the liberal work within the system or you know it's not so different actually to be like um yes all hail all power to the um the ruling class because there's a secret invisible ruling class that i'm actually um sticking it to by <laughs> by doing this no it's funny because like every day now it seems like i'm arguing with a different like strain of like idiot crypto larusha and like i mm. probably i probably I wouldn't say I bear any responsibility, but I'm saying like I probably didn't make it abundantly clear all the times that I would cite LaRouche stuff and mostly laugh and also hmm. sort of use some of their like more conspiracy theory stuff. I thought at every single mm -hmm. point I made abundantly clear that this is a cult and it's not yeah. cool. And every day right. we've got the Pat socks. We've got the freaking mega yeah. communists. We've got the mecha tankies. Every single day, they're trying to rebrand into some new bullshit. And I'm so freaking sick of it. It is the secret sauce. That's, I mean, that's how you got the Trotskyites to turn into neocons, isn't it? I mean, the, this basic kind of mm -hmm. thing. And, and that, yeah, it's no surprise that they're, they're mass marketing that in, at every level that they can. And the question is sort of what to do about that. I see, you know, leftist influencers across the spectrum doing different things, uh, you know, and I, 
yeah, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but some of the responses, one of the responses that I think, uh, you know, so-called conspiracy, pa- paleo, uh, not paleo, but uh, parapolitics, right? Uh, if you are missing that vitamin from your diet, you will not have the muscles to handle this, this one, because, you know, what, what did Jackson Hinkle get started doing? It was some, was it something against school shooters? He was, yeah, on didn't and... he ping pong across a bunch of stuff? So like, yeah, wasn't he like a fed? Yeah. He just bounced around a bunch of movements. Yeah. And like, you know, I just, um, in a different quarter, you know, uh, a very kind of like anti-parapolitics, um, maybe a bit academic adjacent, uh, sort of, you see certain people, uh, and, and playing, uh, basically like Darth Vader, uh, psychoanalysis, like how did he become, how did he fall from grace, <laughs> uh, kind of discourse right on these people and looking up Mussolini back to Mussolini what what did where did Mussolini's heart change how can we find a new way to rephrase national socialism yeah yeah well that's what he's that's what they're doing right mm-hmm. but then like the these responses to this are acting as if um everyone is must be acting in good faith right and there's no such thing as a people being an op Right. When, you know, I read some of these things and there's no new evidence that like Mussolini was secretly sincere when he became a socialist. We know that he was a uh, British operative when he got involved. You know, it's the same as Hitler uh, being a police spy and starting to attend the the Nazi meetings now. Yeah. So like there's no reason to think that the guy that's doing that in the modern day is like in any way ingenuous, you know, like. Yeah, this whole discord, like weepy, it, it has an almost like, what, what should we call it? Where we're, we want to say, yeah, get inside Mussolini's head. And why did he change? And now yeah. he got a signal from his handler to, to do this and that, you know, there's no, and you, you don't have to like wear a hair shirt and like whip yourself three times a day to make sure you don't do that. Because you're not gonna. Yeah, and it's just like, it's not even like a very, I mean, I would be more concerned if it was a more serious attempt to blend the two ideologies, but like, it's basically just communist aesthetics for like mega shit. So like, it's not even particularly like, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it's not that serious. No, it's not sophisticated. Um, Yeah. One hopes that Okay, so was Nazism more sophisticated? Yeah, I want to say it was. Does that hold up? I think I, I think it's more sophisticated yeah. than like MAGA communism, right? It was but more like... sophisticated, and they had better budget. I think mm-hmm. better. Uh, when you look at that one video of what in Chicago or something, they had the big white uh, sculptures of Abraham Lincoln or whatever. Yeah. And they're like marching <laughs> in ill-fitting suits. down some kind of aisle yeah i don't i don't think it's like i mean you gotta you gotta get your parapolitics vitamins folks that's what i that's what i would say honestly because it's just like you're not making it's like that classic like king of the hill meme bit where it's just like christian rock it's like you're not making christianity better you're making rock and roll worse 
Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's nothing to be gained from mixing LaRouche into leftism. Like the man was a crank. Oh yeah, I know. He he just stole money from old people. Like he was basically just about shilling for like Republicans. There's mm-hmm. nothing serious about the project so you don't have to like there's nothing of value to infuse into this thing no no absolutely not
there's um oh that I was gonna mm-hmm. what was I thinking of? So there was something there is something to be said for you know some of these uh what libertarian uh oh, right hippie opposing hippie shit right mm-hmm. opposing hippie shit i can get i can get with that right as much as i love uh i i sometimes will get uh i i walk around these days looking a lot more and more like the dude i think <laughs> uh especially after covid but uh i gotta say that that movie as well is like kind of ruined for me speaking of leftist ruining things <laughs> um, i can't yeah tell me it's tell like, me your theory on the big lebowski that's ruined for me as well because i have like a head cannon where that's developing now as i'm listening yeah that movie like i'm listening to i'm listening to dave mcgowan and i wonder like how much audio there is of him i'm, I'm searching for the the droplets the crumbs of it everywhere right yeah, because uh, I've really only heard like his Opperman appearances. I know he Opperman. did more, but mm-hmm. right, like I, I think there's got to be a lot more out there. And you know, whenever I hear his voice now, I'm like, he's the dude. <laughs> and I just get my uh, it's super it's super paranoid, and the timeline is even wrong, right? Because because that movie came out uh, too too early, right? for that or yeah i think so yeah yeah because mcgowan doesn't really get he doesn't start publishing books until like 2008 yeah and then the big lebowski Lebowski is late 90s yeah 1998 isn't it Hmm? okay 1998 yeah so it's you know if it was based on dave mcgowan in any kind of way and if it was a shit code on dave mcgowan (laughs) right make him look crazy right if if that you know very well that's the thing right because like the the big lebowski or i guess he's not the big lebowski the little the dude i guess i should yeah. say so the dude yeah in the movie talks about being like a student radical back in like the 60s yeah exactly i mean i it i i think it's part of that whole mm, i mean there's a certain kind of take on it you know like i've heard certain dirtbag left podcasts actually took that up at one point and they were saying things about you know oh it's a boomer you know these boomer pathologies of wanting to solve the conspiracy theory and wait can i ask can i can i ask i'll edit out if you don't want to say it but i'm just curious like yeah which podcasts were talking about that so i think this was will menneker on champagne sharks which i don't mind i've said yeah things about them before but um yeah i'm not I'm just, they discuss this and it's on the level of like oh this is a white and and it, it was a racial thing there too right it was part of the series that champagne sharks i think was doing or maybe struggle session i can't remember um mm-hmm. they were sort of uh yeah doing like white people movies right <laughs> i mean it is kind of a white people movie for sure yes Yes, it is. And why do white people like it? So there was, you know, there's a lot to this kind of, um, and it's, it's white boomers kind of having, getting conspiracy theories and having all these groups in their heads and talking about this and that, but then it ultimately means nothing, 
in the end. Right. And that gesture of, you know, it means nothing and having these characters care so much and right. That, that feels very kind of, um, yeah, maybe it could have been orchestrated at some level. So then you start to think who are the various people? Um, <laughs> and the only thing, so the Holy grail on this. Okay. If you really were going to prove it, it would be if like Dave McGowan covering Lake and Ng, because it, you know, it's in his book. What if he was on the radio? And what if he, if he ever said something like, "Asian American, please," uh, <laughs> or like, you know, right? The, in the parlance of our times, or you know, any of these, any of these lines. If he ever thought <laughs> that, I, that would be a pet project as well. Go through the Dave McGowan audio archive, such as it remains right that's hilarious ironically leonard lake is almost more like the walter sobchak character oh okay yeah <laughs> i mean he doesn't he doesn't seem like anybody um and the the hippie image you know there is a guy that is often raised up as like this is the person that the dude is based on and he doesn't seem right at all you know he's was an actual like former student radical and stuff um his voice doesn't sound like the dude his his accent or anything. i'm not sure i know who the real guy is supposed to be i don't remember there's something but i've seen you know oh okay i see I remember his um, voice, but... jeff dowd jeff dowd okay yeah that i, I don't remember his name oh but... yeah he was one of the seattle seven yeah okay i gotcha yeah interesting hmm well, I mean, that whole new left thing was like, <laughs> it was mm. miles away better than what we have now, but like, it's, it was pretty uh, messy and bad. It, be it became very compromised due to a lot of the same sorts of technologies that we are dealing with today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, another, well, this is just... This, this and that a little bit of this and that i guess but another thing that occurred to me on recent my recent jimmy fallon gong listening right mm -hmm. um you're discussing the necronomicon <laughs> and i have not gotten into it myself so much but so i these are maybe basic questions mm -hmm. but the idea that necronomicon so supposedly this is a book that was in greek and translated into english right and the idea that that name means the book of dead names, is that actually in the presentation of the Necronomicon itself? Hmm. So it's the, that thing, way, right? like, the thing that I said is definitely in the Simon book. That is what he says it means in terms of like the text of the Necronomicon itself. It, or, you know, it's like yeah. that plus its okay. introduction may or may not say right. that. I'd have to go right. back and check. I, I feel like I looked it up too. And it's like, oh, that guy is actually saying Simon, you know, maybe it's the title of a certain book under that's at least published under the same name, Simon. Right. Which may Yeah, because Simon definitely be says a... that's what it means. And like, yeah. <laughs> like you're probably about to say that is not what it means. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I'm an old uh, uh, classics nerd, actually. That's what I did in my undergrad. 
right? I, I got Greek, Latin, Hebrew. Um, that was when I was a tradcath as well. Oh, um, nice. You know, I was always kind of a, I was always kind of a social justice Catholic, but I also got real into like, um, yeah, certain cultural uh, Catholic things, right? Pretty hard. And, and, and then I came to Japan and sort of realized how big the world is. And a lot of that kind of mm. melted away really. Uh, but yeah, so, but I still have my, you know, so Necronomicon saying that that's name, right. Uh, so that, I mean, I can see, okay. Like, you know, that would, the Latin roots nom would be, you know, name. Right. But in Greek, nom is onoma. And uh, nomos means like custom or law, right? And, and in a Jewish context, it means the Jewish law. So in the Hellenistic world, uh, you know, nomikos means learned in the Jewish law. And a nomikon would be a book that is uh, about the, it's a commentary on the Torah, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it just for the person to have supposedly, you know, right there, right? <laughs> this person didn't actually translate shit from Greek. Um, just wanted to say, but yeah, no, that it's like, and like the deeper you get, like there was like a longer takedown of the Necronomicon text, like that I didn't mm-hmm. actually use that much in my episode just because I simply don't care about like the text i cared about you know talking about the story Mm. or whatever but like start to finish there's all kinds of like textual evidence that it's not like an ancient text like at all (laughs) yeah yeah well and this is a common thing for like uh the spanish knights uh, knights tales right the chivalric fiction chivalric romance Mm -hmm. are often they often claim to have been translated by you know, through Arabic and Hebrew and, and whatever, you know, and they were found in a crypt under a monastery <laughs> near Constantinople and they've, they're unearthed, you know, Don Quixote's making fun of this convention. Right. Yeah. And situating that as well as being, this is translated from Greek. Right. <laughs> so it's the same sort of thing. Um, yeah. Those slippages, I really get into that. That's another thing that I, I feel like we could vibe on. Um, I often, and I'm often sort of like, you know, as you said in your Cathar episode, I think you're getting into really important insight, seeing that there are all these sort of like neo-Cathars later that are not saying, usually saying something totally different from the actual Cathars, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, there's that for like everything, right? Including from my perspective, you know, I, I mostly dabbled in Hellenistic stuff. Uh, when I was a tradcath, I didn't ever go too close to anything um, non-Orthodox Christian. Uh, but it's been interesting in subsequent years, long after kind of going back and nibbling at some of that, like the Nash Hamadi library, mm. uh, which is some of its Gnostic, some of its Hermetic, some of it's just Platonic stuff. It's a mix of things. Right. And then also the Qumran caves is where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Right. Which we um, we suppose to be maybe a group of Essenes. They never say we are the Essenes in any of these uh, <laughs> documents. But they have they have actually very typical kind of second temple milieu of like 
you know, stuff that Jews in the Middle Ages, uh, when the Hebrew Bible that we actually have sort of really comes together, and the Jewish religion as as we might really know it comes together uh, in Europe, right? It's a very European phenomenon. I feel like this is a wonderful kind of anti-Zionist uh, realization. You know, when you re- read like the Zohar and you real like how European it is, it opens talking about, you know, the my, like a rose of Sharon, you know, so is my beloved among the, uh, and who is a rose? Knesset Israel, the, the assembly of Israel uh, is a rose and it has this many petals and this many thorns and the petals are red and white and a red and white rose is exactly a particular kind of rose that was the most prized in Europe in mm. the right at that time. Whereas the Song of Songs is talking about a lotus blossom mm. originally in the Hebrew, right? So they're writing an Aramaic about European roses, right? It's very much a European religion, right? And yeah, so then, but earlier, a second temple Judaism has this whole milieu that gives birth to Christianity, right? And the particular mix of like, you know, you put your sliders here and there and what you get for the Orthodox version uh, is one thing. And there are different versions that, you know, scholars actually have names and, you know, I haven't read the whole Nashamadi library, but in the back of that volume, there is a catalog of the different schools that have been identified. And there's like Valentinianism and there's like, you know, different things. And, uh, you know, they have different combinations, but the basic gist of it is this worldview that is not in the Hebrew Bible uh, about angels and demons and the fall of man and the idea of, you know, this fall being reversed and so on. A lot of these basic Christian assumptions that are just sort yeah. of never explained. Right. But they're just kind of like, no, there's so much of that. Cause like so much of like the Bible, it just doesn't spell out like heaven or hell or just like all kind. Yeah. Like you said, like it doesn't clearly lay out like some sort of like good versus evil thing. Even it doesn't, clearly state that other gods don't exist you know it almost kind of implies that they do like it's all over the place for so many of like the core things that you would think the bible should address yeah and but where you can find those core things spelled out is in like the dead sea scrolls uh they have that you know as their it's like the moment it's like judaism the moment before christianity breaks off from it and they have all that stuff and uh, and as particularly the Deuterocanonicals, I, I did an episode on this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I almost named it Deuteronormativity, but I thought that was, <laughs> it doesn't quite work. <laughs> it's not like, um, it's like, because uh, heteronormativity is a bad thing, so, right? But uh, the Deuterocanonicals, uh, the ones that are excised from the Protestant Bible, right, that uh, are not accepted by the medieval Jewish religion as authentic scripture, but were actually uh, accepted in the uh, Second Temple period. And we find some of them in Qumran as well, right? And those are those contain a lot of these ideas. Right. And the idea of God's law, the Torah also being like wisdom, being logos, 
being, you know, the connection with uh, Platonism mm -hmm. is already happening there, right? So, you know, that and that in that kind of milieu, right, you have in any kind of Christianity. So this is what I'm getting at is, is that what is the definition of the word Gnosticism? I'm trying to figure this out. Yeah, I know, because you really have to, like, explain exactly what you're talking about. And then it's like, OK, well, are we yeah. talking about this group or that group or that group? It's a huge yeah. freaking mess. And I've had issues mm -hmm. talking about Gnosticism virtually every time it ever comes up. <laughs> yeah. And I think like your milieu, whatever it is, uh, you know, the word Gnostic often means like Satanism, I think. Does it mean Satanism? Does it mean like... No, I don't think yeah. so. I don't think Antinomianism. it's... Antinomianism. See, it doesn't even really mean antinomianism, I don't think, or like it shouldn't. Mm. I mean, as a shorthand, sometimes, yeah. But it's okay if it does mean that for like some people, right? And I think it, I think maybe the people that it means that for are like modern neo Gnostics, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like bourgeois, bourgeois neo Gnostics, right? It does mean a kind of Satanism. Like, there are not very many Gnostics active right now that I would trust, like, in any sense. Uh, and, of course, that doesn't apply to, like, the Cathars or something. Yeah. Yeah, someone that would in introduce themselves as a Gnostic. Yeah, exactly. But, but of course, like, from my perspective, I kind of um, missed all that. <laughs> like, I never really got into the modern um, occult stuff. Uh, un until I became a, a podcast connoisseur, right? <laughs> yeah. And so listening to your fine podcast, I'm kind of now reaching that divide and, and having to figure it out, right? And so, of course, etymologically, gnosis in Greek means a kind of knowledge. It kind of means, you know, um, like you get it, right? Mm-hmm um like you get you get some deep truth right in your in your bones and there's even like a sense in most systems where like the knowledge is like actually the mechanism by which you're like saved or whatever yeah exactly um and i think maybe that's a that's a classical definition of gnosticism is where like that's the only thing that you need mm -hmm. right uh is that realization i mean it's almost like kind of enlightenment um, except that it's a very second temple Judaism kind of enlightenment, because the, the thing that you're supposed to realize is like, you know, a real good definition would be red pill. That would be a very dynamic modern translation mm -hmm. of it is to be red pilled. It means like you realize that, oh, the world, everything that we have here, this is actually, it's actually bad guys at the top of it. Yeah. Um, the bad guys are in control and we need to somehow resist that. Right. Uh, and if that's the only thing you have, then maybe, yeah, Gnosis. but, but very Orthodox Christianity, this is a crucial ingredient, you know, like I, one of my first Christian books that I really loved was mere Christianity by CS Lewis. Mm -hmm. Such a fan of that. Uh, and he has this whole world war II kind of blitz definition of Christianity, where it's, it's like, yeah, we like, uh, we're like London during the Blitz, and where when we pray, we're listening in to the secret wireless from our friends, right? 
<laughs> yeah. Or we're like in the resistance in France. It's like That's, combine that with gravity's yeah. rainbow. It's like we're listening in through prayer. Also, anytime this guy gets a boner, a V2 rocket flies in and kills everyone. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that could <laughs> that adds a whole a whole other dimension. That's true. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, that, but that's, that's, I think, what Gnosticism originally kind of means, right? And so in that sense, um, like, Protestantism is, is pretty Gnostic in that sense. And maybe you could connect, you know, some of the, the birth of Protestantism, right? Sola fidei would mean, I mean, that's part of what Luther means by faith, actually, maybe, is like realizing the situation. I don't know. I mean, maybe there's more to it than that. No, because like a lot of Protestantism is about having like more of like that personal relationship to God, which right definitely has historical you know precedence mm -hmm. with like a host of groups that would be considered Gnostic, right? Right. You just kind of declare your allegiance, and then that's then you're good, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but you know whatever kind of Christianity, this is a basic ingredient that you you know it's kind of like. There is a good God, but then the bad God is in control of the world, and that's Satan. But then we, you know, God, the good God sent a good savior to save us from the bad God that's actually in control of this world. Um, whether or not that bad God created the world, you know, these are sliders that um, are very fluidly being customized in the early years, it seems. Mm -hmm. Right. And then later on, you know, modern neo-Gnostics going back to this, right? And they have like a super, maybe there's like, by the time the neo-Gnostics are coming back to it, it's so ingrained in all of Western culture that uh, any God who created the world has to be good. And anyone who is opposing the creator of the world has to be bad, right? And so they go back to these scriptures and they find Satanism in it. Right. Even if uh, certain original texts, I'm quite sure I, I, I have not actually read a Gnostic text from the Nashamadi scriptures that like says like evil is good or something. Yeah, no, my understanding is that they don't say that um, for sure. I haven't seen one. I, I, maybe there are. I don't know. You know, and, and, and there is some kind of connection to there where it's like, um, well, because the if if you specifically identify the God of the Hebrews as the evil God who created the universe, then, OK, the Jewish law is actually a trick. You could there are people who, I think there are people who do that, though. Yeah, I think and so then that. they. Yeah. That's another slider then that those people would then be antinomian right against the law literally right yeah and so you can no play that game with the sliders with like how you define the demiurge like what mm. you know what the setup is for everything yeah exactly yeah yeah they have these these fake hebrew names like yalda ba'ot um ot is a feminine plural ending in hebrew so it's kind of interesting <laughs> oh um there, here's something I think you'll like. It hasn't come out yet, but I did an episode with Monty on the Freemasons, right? Oh, I can't wait. And there's this component of, so the Freemasonry, it's got like the three degrees. And then there's like a bunch of like expansion packs, quote unquote, essentially. 
to basically do other stuff. So like Scottish Rite is one, like Royal Arch is another. There's a whole bunch. And one of yeah. them has a degree where you find out the true name of God. Okay. Do you mm. want to know what they say the true name of God is? <laughs> I don't know if I want to know. My God, what's going to happen to me? If don't worry. It's not headphones. the real name. I'm certain. <laughs> okay. 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 All right. It's yeah. Three, I guess, what's the term? Um, three, it's like a th- tripartite name sort of thing. So it's okay. Jaw, like kind of like Yahweh or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's oh. bu- Bull as Rastafarian. in. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Bull as in Ball. And God. then there's uh, On, which is as in sort of like Osiris. And so it's like Oh, Yahweh. well, On is a god in the in mm-hmm. the the sumerian pantheon yeah so i think they're sort of alluding to both so it's like osiris yahweh and ball and it it's like hold on there bro what are you trying to sneak in here what are you trying to <laughs> what are you trying to say wow yeah those are well that that's another thing about the necronomicon too the fact that he mentions sumer mm-hmm. i think means it has to be modern as well this is another interesting thing we didn't know about the existence of Sumer until we deciphered cuneiform. We deciphered cuneiform because after like the Rosetta stone for cuneiform is the Behistun inscription, mm-hmm. which is in Afghanistan someplace. Well, you and... see, Fergal, there's an easy way to explain that. It would be that some yeah. ancient Greek Orthodox priest knew about it. And could read it or something, <laughs> or the Arabic yeah. guy before that. I don't know. Like <laughs> they dug up a Greek manuscript that had somehow preserved the knowledge. Um, I, even though I'm pretty sure, like you know, I, I, they knew what cuneiform was. You know, people had like seen it, and they're like, "There's this cuneiform stuff, certain artifacts, right?" Uh, but nobody knew what it was until we found the Behistun inscription, which has Greek and uh, Old Persian, right? It's actually by Xerxes, it's a it was a monument made by Xerxes, whose name in Persian is Kshayar Shah. And we then were able to decipher that syllabary. And then we learned Hittite, and then we learned Elamite, and then we unlocked Akkadian, uh, which is another one we might not have even known of its existence. You know, people would just vaguely say Assyrian, Babylonian, mm-hmm. whatever. Those would be words that people in the ancient world would know and polities that they would be have known of their existence but we learned akkadian and then we realized oh this is akkadian writing system is kind of like japanese where you have these logographs studded in it right uh plus a syllabary and it's encoding a semitic language which is kind of an awkward fit right the semitic languages today have abjads which only encode uh, consonants, right? But a syllabary encodes, you know, it's like Japanese, right? You have to memorize a i u e o kaki kukeko sashi suseso, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so then the question arose: What are these logographs that are? What are they from? They might not be from a Semitic language. And then we found Sumerian inscriptions, and we realized there's this whole other language called Sumerian, and it's very much in the same relation to Akkadian as Chinese is to Japanese. Mm. 
and on is a on is a god in that pantheon so then yeah claiming antiquity claiming to be revealing ancient secrets uh it's it's a go-to source then for that sure makes sense it is so interesting though because like at least in terms of like occultism it seems mm. very clear that like all of it is a hundred percent made up <laughs> mm. Mm. i mean we can this, we can yeah. explain what we mean by like made up but like we're talking like yeah pt barnum circus levels mm. of like truthfulness and like scholarship indeed indeed and that that gets to the kind of core theoretical issue of like perennialism Mm-hmm. perennialism uh, that's the name for you know i've I'm started to read a oxford introduction companion to modern occultism or something a while ago mm-hmm. and that's a name that scholars use that are trying to sort of yeah um, i once i out. once i learned that i really kind of latched onto it as well because mm-hmm. it like explains it yeah. honestly this idea that you know there's one truth that uh, all of these different religions are uh, expressing, not not ex- expressing from a common reality or something in a kind of maybe dialectical materialist way, right? Uh, like culture arises from material conditions. No, nothing so nothing so insightful. <laughs> no, um, and and that's the real perennialism. So I, I think there is a real kind of right, and and we get into this. This will be a good segue into the anthropology stuff, I think. Mm-hmm. But like uh, the perennialism, right? This means that there was one tradition and it it's a revealed tradition. It's not scientifically accessible. It's a revealed tradition, but it was passed on. And all the different versions we have are sort of corrupted versions of the one true version, which any given charlatan is claiming to recover. Yeah, and then it goes back seemingly into any fantasy ancient past you want to pick, whether it's Lemuria, Atlantis, Agartha, Hyperborea, or wherever you want to take it. What is Agartha? I don't know what that is. That's the uh, that's the Hollow Earth one. Oh wow! Okay, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes, sort of like a Shambhala. Sometimes they use it mm-hmm. as like a related term. I first heard that hollow earth thing from a, a Japanese uh, a real, sh- real shifty guy uh, <laughs> in Osaka uh, that I randomly was sitting next to or in a line or something. And he started telling me about that and how the what Jews created the Japanese race out of uh, special blood or no, no, the aliens that live in the center of the world created <laughs> the Japanese as a superior race using Jewish oh. blood. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, there's a ton of that, you know? There's so much, uh, you know, whatever that word is for like the, the right-wing conspiracy theory, the core right-wing conspiracy theory, uh, that is super common. You know, anybody that has any kind of consciousness gets shunted into that in general. No, it's so funny because like you probably recall my buddy Keith Allen Dennis, who has a great rule of thumb, which is just like with any cultic milieu bullshit, all you have to do is wait long enough and figure out what they think of the Jews. And almost immediately, Mm -hmm. it'll be like something truly insane like that. Yeah, 
Exactly. I had a, an exchange with somebody that was kind of like, you know, they'll at least entertain. They, they had an interesting way of saying it. They, they were saying, you know, um, they were saying like is a Viet uh, video game term for the last boss. It's mm. short for last boss. Uh, so the, the last, you know, England last boss theory, last boss theory uh would be would be what i subscribe to pretty much if there's if we're talking about you know nations uh which again is the classic thing to to confuse a japanese person uh that is beginning to have class consciousness and make sure that you can it's the most effective counterinsurgency tool is to get them thinking about nationalism Mm -hmm. right but uh, yeah, they had a list of possibilities. Israel last boss theory was definitely one that he had. Uh, and I was like, if you're going to think about Israel last boss. That's like such a weak ass last boss, honestly. Whoa. Yeah. I, I, I kept it minimal, but I was like, what I decided to say was just... Uh, if you're going to consider Israel, you got to consider Japan last boss theory because post-war Japan, you know, the Japan as we know it is no older than Israel, which is right after World War II, it was born. And it fulfills all the same kind of functions, being a sort of Anglo-American puppet in a region that's mostly <laughs> hostile. Right? Yeah. Japan hasn't gotten to uh, expand its territory in the way that Israel has, has attempted to, I think maybe they were envisioning and and are still envisioning that it will uh, expand into very actively into like Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, right. In the way that uh, Ukraine is now doing right. Zelensky let drop. He sees Ukraine as being a greater Israel. (laughs) That was the trend, which I, I don't think he means like greater, like greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. Uh, yeah. Um, like a sa- satellite of it. I think he means like a better version of the Israel model. So that's just laying it on the table. See, that's the true horseshoe theory, which is just that like <laughs> Ukraine Nazis <laughs> being into the ethno state thing <laughs> to the point where they'll say something like that. Oh, Lord.
I think a lot of now I think a lot of fascists appreciate you know I mean I have I have known some Japanese fascists and I've known so I was as a kind of grad student in Japan uh and I was during grad school just kind of a standard liberal you know I I supported Hillary in uh 2016 it's okay grad right? school's hard I'm sure you were busy <laughs> you have to you are so disciplined there you know yeah gabriel rockhill was just a uh, you know scales falling from my eyes who is that um, you mentioned him before i'm not familiar he is so good yeah i mean it maybe you don't need his medicine uh but i i so did uh he, he studied at the feet of derrida mm. and all these people he you know writes and publishes in french uh, although his book oh, got this, like, axed no, because maybe you did send yeah. him that sounds familiar now i think you might have sent him to me before i might have posted him on like every discord that yeah, I, yeah. I became a total apostle um no, yeah if you've you know been what? in any kind of grad school program you gotta listen to his someone was saying podcasts. i should have him on if you have had any contact with lit crit kind of stuff you know and i have been thinking you know through my kind of political uh awakening i uh, sort of uh had been thinking oh do i have to do this i you know i would love to go through and all the foucault and and derrida and altusser that i read in grad school and i think altusser even is is due for some plenty of critique if you could connect it to parapolitics in some way that'd be awesome yeah, yeah. like mm -hmm. would you well you can you can though his latest appearances he's talking about how like horkheimer Horkheimer was the one that was really intelligence connected. And then, oh, I don't even know that. I don't know my Frankfurt school guys so well, but uh, they were basically got loads of American money and were very, very openly scheming to pry Walter Benjamin away from the influence of uh, Brecht, hmm. who they saw as a contagion and they what, for just being openly, like a chill dude who was like a normal communist to communist yeah no they were bringing and they're like they're in charge of the money to bring people over to the u.s and they were very much like benjamin has to cut ties with brecht 
and become a compatible left shill uh, and he's not doing it. And so they very deliberately soft pedaled his, they very deliberately, uh, what do you call it? Uh, like go slow on his getting him the money to, mm -hmm. to get out. Uh, and literally that led to his death. Jeez. Rock Hill claims. Well, okay. And claims like that. That would be yeah. so cool because like, I do not trust those, the Frankfurt school, mm. you know, I know that's a pretty like sweeping statement because there's a bunch of them, but like, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was uh, Adorno. Yeah. Horkheimer and Adorno were basically mm. kind of conspiring to uh, slow Walter Benjamin's progress out of Germany because he was insufficiently cooperative with their American handlers interesting and um yeah i bet that's like probably ties into like the committee for cultural freedom and all that like cia money running flowing around i'm just guessing Indeed. i don't know but yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he has things that he says there's claims that he makes about hannah arendt as well mm. that made his french publisher to uncomfortable and they pulled out and just like nuked his contract basically hot damn so he's having to rewrite that book he's rewriting that book in english he was going to publish it in french and like do the proper you know in the exact same forum but he's not doing that now yeah that's the latest i know just as a fan yeah no that's so cool. Yeah. So we were getting into the kind of, you know, good guys and bad guys and, um, you know, red pill, blue pill, right. Mm -hmm. um, of gnosis. Right. So ironically, if you are, if you would be, it, it, bear, it bears on what we do with our conspiracy knowledge, because I very much agree that if we are only going to dig into all these details of parapolitics and just know about them and just be a vigilant citizen or whatever. That's Gnostic. That's literally, that's the definition uh, originally of Gnosticism, right? I've had my gnosis. I realized the world is in control of all the worst people. Uh, and yeah. just my realizing that is enough to like somehow my soul can ascend through the spheres. Which like, I... I yeah. very strongly feel that like knowledge is not enough, right? Like, I don't think knowing this yeah. does it. I mean, it does it sounds obvious the way I'm saying it, but like knowing about something doesn't really do you a lot of good if you're going to, oh, I don't know, fall for patriotic socialism yeah. or mega communism again. Yeah. I mean, and if you're a fan of Jesus, uh, you know, what does he say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my father's kingdom, but only who, he who does the will of my father. Mm -hmm. uh, so and uh, faith. Yeah. Faith without works is dead. It's so true. James says, right. There's a there's anecdotes that stuck out to me in this random book I read um, about Jeffrey Sachs, I guess, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, who is like this economist who played a role in the literal rape of like multiple countries. It's a whole thing, right? He's a terrible human being, but the anecdote was occupy wall street. Right. So there was like a ton of people. There was a, like a lot of different factions. There's really a sort of like squishy inchoate, like 
undetermined sort of vibe about the protests for good or bad right and here comes jeffrey Sachs, a literal a guy who should not be allowed to walk on the street i'll say that he should not yeah be free he comes into the occupy wall street camp and he starts like talking about like oh it's you know crony capitalism and we really do need to hold things to account and like yeah a bunch of people were listening to him and they were really enjoying it right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it took although i have my issues with trotskyites it took a group of trotskyites to show up and be like who the fuck let jeffrey Sachs in here get him the fuck out of here that dude should be shot like go away and they just like <laughs> shouted at him until he left mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. for me i read that story many years ago but like yeah I didn't really get into quote-unquote conspiracy theories for fun, right? Like, I got into it because it was, like, partially seeing, you know, how well electoralism Mm. was working in the United States, and part of it was, like, Mm. realizing that, like, history had these, like, dark sides of the moon or what have you, and, like, Mm. if you want to know at the right juncture who to not listen to or something like that then you need to know like a bunch about history so like Mm. that that's a uh that was a thing that stuck out to me as you were describing it oh yeah yeah i was trying to say earlier right in connection with the larushite thing like there's there's really legitimate uh criticisms of liberalism right but that Mm -hmm. that shouldn't like push you into Right. This kind of because they're always waiting with the psyops. They're always waiting mm-hmm. with the psyops. And that is exactly uh, that's the, the truth that anthropology can lead you to. This is really speak on it. Speak on it, Fergal. That's the long and short. That's the long and short of it. You might. You know, I did uh, imagine uh, Aizawa Seishisai says this one of the Mito school uh, Confucianist scholars who is still mm. trying to like keep Japanese feudalism going in the 19th century <laughs> and like how do we do it we uh, uh, we okay we'll we'll put all the samurai back on the land and they'll work together with the peasants you know get them out of their luxury luxurious pleasure houses in the capital in Edo right get them on the land you know, rugged uh, mountain air <laughs> and we'll produce so much rice my god we will produce so much rice that you know, these English with their steamships and their, you know, coal and their capital networks and their capital accumulation and their finance, you know, we'll just we'll have so much rice. You, you won't be able to believe it. So, you know, and he he even says, like, when you when you first have a feudal state like you, uh, you might be able to get peasants to work at Spearpoint for a while. But eventually you have to have a polity that everyone believes in and an ideology and everyone kind of working together, right? Mm-hmm. So even he sees the order as being first, maybe it's violent and we kidnap, you know, maybe the first peasants were kidnapped by the, and brainwashed by the first, um, right, uh, aristocrats. Yeah, went back like the first aristocrats being just outright gangsters, right? Yes, that's the other thing. Gangsters are actually the ruling or the ruling class are gangsters. Not mm-hmm. all 
Not all gangsters are ruling class, but all ruling classes are gangsters. That is certainly true. I like that. But you might imagine that the order is first you have threat of violence and then later you brainwash them and so on, right? And a lot of the MK Ultra kind of experiments and all of the, you know, cult, uh, that word cult is going to be <laughs> interesting to think about. Um, but you might think that that comes first, but actually what we see is really the PSYOP comes first because that's not how human beings work. Human beings, when we were evolving, you know, it seems that uh, we left the trees because of a lot of deforestation and primates at that time, there would have been just enormous primates and we were, our ancestors would be a very small kind of version of a primate. And we were basically driven out of the forest onto the savanna where wait, wait, survival wait, wait. is much more challenging. Yeah. For goal. Real quick, where does Dr. Yakub fit into this? Oh yeah. Well, Dr. Yakub would have um <laughs> I'm like yeah. I'm like at what stage does he Yeah, no, he's a lot later. Um he would have been active among the the Spanish and among the um Viking Rus. Right. I mean, that's the that's the historical time period that really fits with Yakub. Um, if you read like Ibn Fudlan, I've, I've done an episode on on the Ibn Fudlan being a sort of missionary among the Viking Rus. And he's writing reports back. Was that the dude that uh, the Michael Crichton book was based on? Yeah, I bet it was. I bet it was. Yeah. And he talks about how dirty they are. Nice. I read that when I was a kid. And it, they're so shocked because he's like circumcised. Yeah, good stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a good NYU Press uh, bilingual version of it that I have here. And uh, oh, it's so great. But yeah, wild, uh, very, very sort of low civilizational level. As much as I respect people who are on a quote unquote low civilizational level. Uh, that you can see how Europe is like and and that's the way that Herodotus talks about Europe and it's the way that Hippocrates talks about Europe um they're just some hunter gatherers and pastoralists riding horses and they're very dirty and uh <laughs> they they actually don't they seem to have a very egalitarian society right Hippocrates uh sees the uh, transgenderism among them and thinks that that's really sick right? Because uh, he comes from a more stratified society that has more defined gender roles, right? So. Interesting. So yeah, that's where Yakub would be. <laughs> Something that would not make like the Nazi like <laughs> pagans or the... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, they... Yeah, they're drawing on that, right? I mean, I think reading... Nobody reads Spanish romance knight's romance knight's tales mm -hmm. um and they are very you know it's boring and it's not like literary or whatever it's like it's very much like the comic book of the day mm -hmm. uh the people writing them are very parapolitically connected it's mm -hmm. definitely you can see spanish knight's tales are an op and they <laughs> were the the genre that got everyone fired up to go and be a conquistador right Mm. This idea of going to strange unknown lands and, and winning back more isolas, right? Winning back more islands from the, the Moors, right? 
and joining the fight to save the Constantinople. When you read that, you realize this is the Lord of the Rings. This is all that this is. You know, people always, that's a psyop. That's a cover-up. Right? They're <laughs> calling, it's the cover-up when they always say the Lord of the Rings is based on Beowulf. Mm. That's not true at all. You know, he was a scholar of Beowulf. Okay. And Sir Gawain in the Green Knight. Uh, which interestingly, the color green, the rug, the roll of the belt, uh, the green knight himself, these are all figures from Futuwat, which is Muslim chivalry, mm. Muslim code of chivalry. They were copying that. They were retconning it. They copied chivalry from the Muslim world and retconned it. Uh, Khalid has mentioned this. Yeah, I, I recall. Uh, but I'm waiting for his deep dive on that. That would be cool. Yeah. Wouldn't it? So, but actually it's based on uh, Spanish knight's tales, uh, you know, going to help the, um, the beleaguered Eastern Christians defend Constantinople from the monstrous Morris who are depicted as monstrously, you know, they're giants, they're, you know, all kinds of monsters. Yeah. And certain uh, one, one of the, stupid tribes in the lord of the rings i remember is coded as very middle eastern yeah i recall yeah 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 and it is beleaguered kind of like constantinople isn't it yeah mm. right the king to the the or not the he's not like the real king the real king is returning this is the return of the king mm. but uh who's the guy that's like in constantinople and like taking care of it he's like looking after it while the real king is away and how is he depicted? He's like, it's exactly like uh, the Eastern Christians are depicted in this Spanish literature. They're mm. corrupt. They're, they don't care enough about holy war. They don't really want to win, you know? Interesting. That's how it is in the Lord of the Rings, too. He's like, oh, we're, we're going to lose anyway. I've lost hope. I've lost my spirit, you know? So, uh, but millions of years ago, we just got out onto the savannah let's see here oh i did want to say uh i'm i'm sure my listeners don't recall but you did point out to me that nichiren buddhism is not zen and i did want to oh, yeah. reiterate that it is not brian dyson victoria's fault it was my fault <laughs> for conflating the two his explanation is extremely minimal he doesn't offer at any point like lay out oh these are the different kinds of japanese buddhism and this is what they're like and that would have been helpful for a general reader because mm -hmm. he of course did attract them um so that's interesting that's helpful for me to see uh yeah nichirenism is is very kind of shamanistic a lot of the time kind of animistic right uh that's right and that, that's a big part of what he was doing, right? Yeah, anyway, sort of like that apocalyptic vibe. It's very interesting. Yeah, and there was a... So Nichiren had a doctrine, too, of, like, um, protecting the nation. Buddhism, well, they all do. I mean, that's how you sell a mm -hmm. new version of Buddhism. But um, also shakubuku, like violent overthrow, um, breaking down enemies to the nation using these powers. Yeah. And, you know, like, I, you know, I talked about it, but like Zen does have that sort of side that can be copacetic with a certain interpretation of destruction. So I definitely conflated mm. the two. 
Well, there's a big antinomian strain in Japanese Buddhism in general. You know, you have like Ikkyu Sojun is the famous kind of esthete and libertine. You know, it's it's there's a kind of image of a eccentric libertine monk mm-hmm. that like it even he, shows up in anime. I bet. Okay, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. It's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm uh, I'm a monk. But so EQ himself had like really certain principles that he upheld and he went on a hunger strike in response to some political corruption at Daitokuji, his monastery, and um, took certain things very seriously. But he had this whole character of like, I visit brothels and I have my favorite courtesan woman and he Mm -hmm. writes poetry about sex and and so on. And his thing is like, you know, I'm being, I'm avoiding clinging to rules like don't have sex. And this is my Zen. <laughs> I'm being right. So nice. Right. Which again, that's another slider that you find in Christianity. Jesus on some level is antinomian because he's saying, I mean, he, there are words that are, um, you know, maybe put in his mouth, but may, the gospel writers are sure, make sure to include when Jesus says, uh, not one jot or tittle of the law will will pass away or something right um to make sure that we know that he is not totally antinomian but there's a certain some kind of sense right in which like the sabbath is made for man not man for the sabbath right uh, sort of yeah like a uh, not entirely all about only the rules yeah yeah and then Paul gets into things like, you know, the most important thing is like not making your brother stumble, not necessarily like, do you follow this or that rule all the time? Maybe he's mostly talking about Jewish dietary laws, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of that, right? There's a certain amount, but not maybe a lot, right? And certain kinds have more. But in, in Zen, yeah, you can get plenty of that sometimes, right? And that also can be part of their, you know, they'll... EQ as well fiercely criticized uh, some of his Dharma brothers there for being uh, Maisu, so, so like a, a bought a seller priest, like selling priests, like a mm-hmm. selling Dharma, maybe is a way that it's translated sometimes um, by cavorting because they were cavorting with tea men and arms dealers and warlords in the markets of Sakai which is about a little south of Osaka today. Uh, but, you know, EQ himself also was involved in a lot of this kind of thing. <laughs> um, and he would have justified it by sort of saying, oh, we don't follow the rules all the time. You know, if you did, if you were a fuddy-duddy, then you couldn't really be Zen, could you? Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So, but shamanism is a, yeah. Yeah. What, what else did you have, though? Wait, no, um, no, I think that's a that like that's perfect because like, listen, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about shamanism. Mm, mm. Yeah. So have I. So have I. Um, so it looks like shamanism is in a way the kind of original human religion. Uh, mm-hmm. Millions of years ago, uh, before Yakub, uh, <laughs> we were out on the savanna, right? kicked out of the forest and we had to survive. We had to cooperate 
and really fierce traditions of egalitarianism developed and also of hospitality and community building and networking so that you could it's, the thinking is that this allowed people to survive the very adverse conditions a little bit better. So if there were conventions of forming strong bonds among people, maybe sometimes people who just randomly would meet each other out on the savannah groups, you know. So religion, religious rituals, uh, this theory would have it. And I'm mainly drawing on Brian, Brian Hayden. Uh, I've read a little bit of his slightly more liberal idealist interlocutor Ian Hodder as well. Um, Brian Hayden is very materialist and that's why I like him. Uh, I think he's missing a certain, a certain kind of idealism, you know, a certain kind of vision, right? I think ultimately he does fall into sort of what maybe the Davids in the Dawn of Everything would critique as being, I mean, they, criti they cite him kind of unfriendly, uh, what, in a critical way. Oh, they do. I didn't, I didn't yeah. realize. As, as being too formulaic, you know, their whole thing is like, oh, we're always free. We're always free to choose any social form we want. But that ends up <laughs> leaving us in this really liberal place where it's just like, oh, you're, it's our insufficient faith or something. Yeah. Like <laughs> the reason, yeah. I mean, you get this on a religious register as well with certain really extreme forms of Protestantism where it's like, uh, you know, the only thing that you can do is like believe harder. So. <laughs> If, if everything isn't going well for you, like clearly it's your fault because you don't believe hard enough or whatever, right? Let me, um, let me ask you this, yeah. Fergal. Uh, what is the yeah. general, just for the listeners, sake, what is the general thesis of Hayden's book? Okay, so I have read uh, The Power of Ritual in Prehistory, mm -hmm. which is his thing about secret societies. Um, I was starting to talk about what's in Shamans, Sorcerers, and Saints. Mm -hmm. uh, which is his prehistory of religion in general. And it, it covers a lot of the same ground. Basically, the, the power of ritual and prehistory is zooming in on the sorcerer's part, mm -hmm. which is the, the birth of secret societies or feasting. You know, I mean, a, a less uh, evocative way to say that would be feasting societies, which is a lot of what Brian Hayden has written his more real straight, academic books about is feasting here and there and what it does to have feasts among egalitarian or trans egalitarian people because mm. this initial kind of society human society which lasts for hundreds of thousands of years millions of years objectively you know we have a tendency to cut off where modern homo sapiens kind of biologically exists or whatever but there's that's not useful there's actually tons of evidence for um, some of these rituals among Neanderthals and uh, lots of sort of pre-Homo sapiens, Homo erectus a little bit, right? Um, although Homo erectus actually is, is extremely sexually dimorphic and that goes together with a very extreme social hierarchy because basically in order to even reproduce, you have to like kill or dominate every other man who's your same age, mm. right? And they have like harems, right? Uh, so that would go together with a lot of, yeah. um, it's not quite abolish the family, but right. Like, um, <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think the real, the real doctrine, uh, the real Dharma is, uh, 
expand the family to include uh, all of society, right? Much more like these, uh, our most successful, most human, I think, ancestors who were yeah. on the savannah and were forming these networks and doing, doing shamanistic spirituality uh, as a community building. Yeah. I saw today that someone was trying to argue that uh, abolish the family is like the, you know, not necessarily the best way to translate what Marx was saying to something more like mm. supersede, you know, yeah. move, to I move mean, beyond maybe. Yeah. Uh, the, the place to look is uh, origins of the family, private property in the state, uh, mm-hmm. which of which my podcast is in many ways, just a big extension, you know, trying to explore yeah. all these different. Yeah. Uh, so this, yeah. Se- sexually that uh, is true. And any future really egalitarian society. Yeah. You're going to have changes certainly. Um, so spirituality though, seems to really is key, very crucial to forming these strong, strong bonds between in many cases strangers you know i think really strong conventions of hospitality uh come into being because of this and uh then you get a certain stage called uh trans egalitarianism or complex hunter gatherers and what actually happens is you start to get these feasting societies or religious societies in a way that the shamanism is performed not by everyone but by only certain members uh, of the community. And e- even then, if you have certain shamans who are, you know, um, good at it, uh, that is not, that doesn't necessarily go together with secret societies and trans egalitarianism, mm-hmm. but it begin it at a certain point, it does begin to, uh, in some places. Right. I do like to preserve the kind of freedom, you know, there's something to be said for like, uh, we can go in any direction at any time, uh, and when we look at something like trans egalitarian societies uh, around what's now the U.S. and Canada, right, you have them surviving into modernity and being uh, recorded by these ethnographers, right, who are often working for oil companies. They're working for, you know, uh, the capitalists. And so that's complicated, too. They have a motivation to sort of uh, depict this. Uh, these societies in as negative a light as possible. I do like that where it's like, okay, you know, there is a way that history has developed. That doesn't mean that it had to develop Mm -hmm. that way. And that's true for like nations, peoples, tribes, at every juncture, it didn't have to, you know, go through like feudalism and then, you know, whatever stages of history you want to map out. Right. Yes. Uh, although at the same time, you know, there, Brian Hayden has a lot of uh, naysayers um, in the archaeological community. And one of his sort of responses to them, probably in, in an epigraph to one of his final chapters in the Secret Society book is uh, a quote that says, you know, the reaction against sort of historical, a rigid historical stages kind of view has, has in some cases amounted to a denial that patterns exist. Yeah. And of course, we don't want to go there, right? Like we, we will look and, and see the patterns because uh, they are there. 
things do frequently develop in a certain pattern and yeah exactly yeah Yeah. um so you know maybe zooming in on spirituality i think maybe this is a good you know like a question that has arisen for me in a lot of recent podcasting listening including your own uh is sort of what is the class character of any given religious expression and by comparing archaeological examples where we find we comparing archaeological examples and ethnographic examples of complex hunter gatherers and simple hunter gatherers you find that in southern africa a lot uh, totally egalitarian you know they have all kinds of mechanisms to make sure that nobody begins to accumulate more power than anyone else right and and that seems to be much more kind of our original state uh, up until maybe about 50,000 years ago, you know? So it's kind of cool. You can think there's a there's a 500-year world system that you could call capitalism. There's a 5,000-year world system that's maybe, you know, the state and class society proper. And then there's a 50,000-year uh, world system, which is uh, trans-egalitarianism. It seems, which at no point, that doesn't mean that uh, the any of these were at all times the majority uh, that's interesting to realize too. Up until 400 years ago, two thirds of humanity was still living outside the state. Hmm. So, various kinds of hunter gatherers and pastoralists and stuff with the age of exploration, right? So, but 50,000 years ago, uh, you know, I suspect there are books like the Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, uh, which are. Um, by Paulette Steves, right? Um, an indigenous writer, indigenous um, archaeologist, right? Uh, and that's really, that's what we can expect a lot of great developments there uh, because she's identifying all kinds of archaeological sites that there's all kinds of pressure in the academic community to not recognize them as being uh, human hmm. because that would mean, that would threaten the myth that uh, like there's actually quite a bit of investment in a lot of quarters in the idea that uh, indigenous Americans only arrived, you know, maybe 2000 years ago or 3000 years ago or something. They don't have this ancient presence there anyway, uh, which it seems like they do. So that all of that is to bracket this, but it seems like the standard uh, interpretation of trans-egalitarianism is that it actually arises in Europe. We begin to see these sites in the Pyrenees, right? Where they're building all the uh, uh, luxury bunkers for the end of the world. (laughs) That's fitting, right? Yeah, the Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard was was hanging around the Pyrenees too. That's, That's a real spooky area. But um, they had these narrow river valleys where game, and there was a huge biomass of these giant moose and aurochs. The aurochs were like, oh yeah, I'm really like triceratops. You know, this is wild to learn about. But our ancestors, uh, up until fairly recently, were living with what? I mean, that's what a bull. Is. A bull is a domesticated aurochs. A and it's really like it's much a, more like almost a, like a chihuahua yeah. to a wolf, right? <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, I think so. I mean, it's like it would have been like a triceratops kind of size, right? Um, yeah. So, 
and that they uh, that's why Auroch's skulls form uh, have a, a huge role in this. You know, um, I think our ancestral memories of a horned man uh, being a powerful image probably come from a lot of the rituals that we see. Ritual importance of bull bull skulls, uh, right? There's a term for that, bucrania. Yeah, <laughs> probably <laughs> to avoid the awkward English of bull skull. It's too hard to say. But uh, we we were uh, what what we see in in the Pyrenees is bone scrapers and uh, fine leather ceremonial garb and fine ritual paraphernalia. And those are the key signs of trans-egalitarian society. Because the first thing that you start to get is not really that somebody kidnaps somebody else. You know, that's actually not sustainable. That, that doesn't last long at all. So in that sense, Aizawa Seishisai is right. But what was required to transition us into class society was these secret societies that would take control of ritual life for the community. And they would be the ones to hold ceremonies. Um, you know, whereas before, you know, sometimes specialist shamans would be the ones to do it and so on. And sometimes a shaman, one shaman would become very uh, domineering and exploit their community, but then the community could easily rise up against him and kill him. And that happens in a lot of the ethnographic record. Right. This is always combining, you know, archaeological plus ethnographic, mm -hmm. right, into a composite picture. Um, so all disclaimers again for that. But uh, what we see with trans-egalitarianism is that slowly uh, based on uh, always the fiction, um, and it sort of becomes increasingly a fiction, right? And I think there's degrees of this. I do think a lot of these societies around Turtle Island that uh, were still around in the 20th century are still around today, uh, right? But they were still around to be ethnographically recorded. Uh, there's a huge case to be made that they managed to keep their society at that level because they had, they were using this as much of a mechanism for sort of disposing of what you might call aggrandizers. I think that mm. might be Brian Hayden's term too, right? You're going to get people who want to maximize their own authority and power, right? And what do you do with them? In the way this gives them something to do, you know, make them make all kinds of cool feather suits <laughs> and, right? And they'll be grand, you know, they'll be over there doing that, right? Uh, and they become very invested in organizing the feasts, basically. I'm the, we're, we're the organizers of the feasts at which everyone gets, you know, it's Oprah, you get a car, you get a car, you get, <laughs> you get fish oil, you get fish oil, you get, right. You get bacon, you get bacon. Everybody gets bacon, right. That's what it would be in the Pyrenees. I think moose bacon. And imagine if we had the most annoying person in society in charge of uh, just making parties rather than, I don't know, running the country. <laughs> yes. Yes. Imagine if Peter Thiel, that's what he was really into instead of, you know, what he actually is into. That's, that's what we're talking about. Right. So may, I think, again, there's a lot to learn uh, from this as well. Uh, this is at one and the same time, 
like you were saying, you know, there's always freedom. This is really true. Uh, so it isn't quite like, oh, this is where it all went wrong there. And in, in a way, it's like their fault or something, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is why there were bans on like the ghost dance among the plains peoples and bans on the potlatch, right? Mm-hmm. Where Lai Hall is from, right? Yeah. Uh, shout out to him. You did an excellent episode with him. I was about to say your episodes with him are amazing. Like, oh, thank you. I, I will say for the listeners, like, the stuff we're sort of touching on now with Hayden, like mm. Fergal and Lyall did amazing episodes. So check those out. Mm. Yeah. That's going through that with, you know, a real samurai uh, correcting me and <laughs> sharing firsthand knowledge of these traditions. Right. So yeah, you're always free to do, and it isn't like, Oh, the origin of all the evil. Right. Um, but I, so what we should probably focus on is kind of like what is the character of the gods there you know i mean it connects to this sort of gnosticism not not really gnosticism but like what neo gnostics mean right uh it connects to satanism right Mm. uh and this question of what is the class character of any given religious expression because the kinds of supernatural beings that these uh secret societies come to uh, believe in and become they go from being just mere forces of nature to being like really scary monsters mm. right and it's very much i mean in the west we have santa claus uh, i think i discussed in in japan you know we have there's things like figures like namahage uh, somebody dresses up in a scary uh, outfit and comes around to the houses <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the children are really afraid of him. And Namahage says, are you going to be a good boy and girl? Are you going to obey your parents? And they say, yes, yes, I will. And then, okay, well, then I'll let you go. And I won't eat you up, you know. <laughs> uh, it's, real, it's that. <laughs> yeah. Real quick, too, I must interject. In I think it's Argentina. Uh, sort of a stand-in for like the tooth fairy is this thing called ratoncito perez which is like oh a, just a rat so rather than a tooth fairy oh. it's a rat who collects your teeth oh nice <laughs> it's just is he a threatening presence like trying to make you to obey or i i couldn't tell you i would find that terrifying mm. but uh <laughs> yeah it's similar to that. Well, and there's Krampus, right? Krampus mm-hmm. is in Northern Europe. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and, and this reflects the transformation that Satan undergoes in the Jewish tradition too, right? By the time you get to second temple Judaism, he's an evil power that has temporarily taken over this world and there's cosmic good and cosmic evil, but very arguably in early Judaism, uh, right? When the Torah is written, maybe under uh, Persian um, state support, actually, there's an interesting argument about that. Uh, He is like God's policeman. He's God's cop, right? Like Mm -hmm. Hasatan in Hebrew gets translated very faithfully into Greek as diabolos, which means a lawyer, a prosecuting attorney, prosecutor, right? Hmm. That's what that word actually means. So, and that morphs from like, you know, scary guy that's going to punish you if you don't obey 
into the guy who wants you to do the bad things. So isn't that interesting? Uh, and we have in very early, uh, quote unquote, these kinds of religions, right? Bad guys who are out there and we do these rituals to like protect the community against them, right? And then we also have a big feast, everybody eats, right? Uh, they don't, these secret societies don't accumulate surplus on their own. So it's actually interestingly debatable whether you can call this a mode of production. Mm. But what they're producing is is actually debt. Yeah. They're they're collecting debt. People have gratitude toward them. Yeah, I recall reading uh, and uh, not to get on a whole other tangent, right? But that uh that guy, David Graeber, right? He wrote yeah. that book Debt. Mm-hmm. which sort yeah. of explores how <laughs> debt is not like a uh, new concept. It's <laughs> been around mm-hmm. a long ass time and so forth. That would connect with that book, right? Because mm-hmm. like, it turns out debt is actually really important. Uh, and if you realize that, then you can maybe count this as a mode of production. I don't know, mm-hmm. but they're not accumulating surplus and, and they have ledgers like the Kwakwakiwak in uh, Northwest Turtle Island have these ledgers of like who has given a potlatch, right? And giving a potlatch is the way that you pay for all kinds of things, right? It's a kind of currency. Yeah. Feasting. Um, I mean, that's true in Sumerian literature too, Akkadian literature. There are these great translated uh, collections out now. Um, one for o- from Oxford of Sumerian and for Akkadian, you have Before the Muses by a certain scholar. And it's super long and got lots of interesting stuff. But like, yeah, religion back then, and, and this would be from a 19th century perspective, it's like, oh, they were Satanists, they worshiped the devil, they loved evil. Well, no, the, the role is that they are protecting the community from these evil powers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then uh, not as much, uh, well, sometimes, uh, we, we see this in ethnographic accounts, but definitely clearly in places like Jerfel Ahmar in Syria and uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, we see lots of evidence for human sacrifice mm. being part of these, which then you do get into a kind of, and this is what I want to hypothesize here, a real kind of upper class religion, right? The class character of this would be, I am an upper-class, domineering, uh, secret society member. And yeah, ultimate expression of hierarchy is to eat somebody, right? Yeah, because the Hayden book, at least the um, the power of ritual and prehistory, sort of postulates that the state, such as it is, like the old, yeah. old versions of it, came out of these secret societies, right? I mean... Ethnographically, characterization. It is ethnographically. We have uh, in evidence that very often, even when there are sort of nascent chiefdoms, those chiefs are members of the secret society, but they're not the highest ranking members. Hmm. the The real power players choose the chief from among the lower uh, ranks, actually. Because that's then someone they can control. Right? Boy, I'm, I'm glad we don't have that anymore. Glad we don't have that anymore. Gee, glad uh, nobody's... Uh, I'm glad Prince Andrew 
is uh, has been totally disgraced by his connection to Jeffrey Epstein and not helped <laughs> by it at all, uh, so that he's totally banished from the government and you can totally uh, yell at him in public without any repercussions. <laughs> and he's not playing a core role of like basically serving as substitute king uh, under Charles. <laughs> Gee, imagine. Uh, and then ar archaeologically, we have evidence of uh, cults of cannibalism, human sacrifice and stuff only within the palace complex. And then outside mm. the palace complex, we have things that are more consistent with a public sun cult, a public, you know, there's a good God and he wants you to follow all the rules, guys. Right. Um, and maybe, you know, some scary guys will punish you if you don't and so on. Right. Um, that's more consistent with like megalithic cultures, which exist in uh, Java, maybe somewhere in Southeast Asia in modernity. And then, of course, Stonehenge type thing. Uh, Stonehenge is not the biggest one. There's Avebury. There's Woodhenge. Stonehenge and Woodhenge are real interesting kind of paired uh, class distinction. Probably. I mean, there's different interpretations, but right. Ultimately, Hayden's view is that, uh, I mean, he's very incisive and very materialist and methodical. And he rejects for good reasons, I think, the kind of functionalist interpretations of someone like Ian Hodder. And what he means by calling that functionalist is like, uh, okay, they have calendars, they have, you know, we have to do the feast at this time. Um, so that means that it totally is the reason why the community is flourishing, that the calendar is that way and they have the feast at that time. If the elites didn't think of their calendar and write it down and everything and make their sculptures and religious rituals around it, then ordinary people totally would not just do that on their own. I have heard people say things like that. It totally does. It totally serves the function that the elites are saying that it serves. <laughs> um, and they have explanations like population pressure as well, um, which uh, Hayden also dismantles saying that, you know, there's no such thing, basically, if uh, there's no reason why having a certain amount of population at some point forces you to have hierarchy. Uh, we have examples where they don't do that. Right. Yeah. And those are discussed in like dawn of everything as evidence for why we're all totally free and we can just liberally choose to be good at any time but yeah it's it's a great it's a great argument for why actually class power is the driver here and it comes into being gradually you know not by holding anybody at spear point at first right because you can only it's only after these secret societies have been active for millennia you know literally thousands of years um that they start to really have these bigger roles and then you start right then you really get the the neolithic revolution where we have agriculture going um and then they really uh they really take over only three or four thousand years after the neolithic revolution though there's this interesting division between pre-pottery neolithic a and pre-pottery neolithic b which are known as ppna and ppnb uh <laughs> so that's from about 12,000 years ago, I think, to about 9,000 years ago. Uh, and we observe this in the Near East, 
So according to the received geography, which I don't know, maybe Paulette Steves and people like her will uh, upturn, overturn that, but maybe we first get the secret societies in the Pyrenees and then we first get the agricultural societies in the Near East. And that culture spreads West and East as well. So, and then we get the megalithic cultures, right? That's this, your Stonehenge type thing. Although there's similar things in like Portugal, Spain, France, all these places. Interesting. Yeah, and we have evidence, right, of the human sacrifice, human sacrifices and things happening maybe only within the temple, only among the elites. And then outside, um, it probably is more, you know, hey, there's a good God, uh, right? And, me, and so then, yeah. Well, let me ask you, does, and this might mm -hmm. be outside the scope of what Hayden is doing, but is there any indication at any point as to like what the human sacrifice is? Like, what does it do? Yeah, I mean, so the the custom of eating the brains of an animal or an, another human being uh, when we see a, a skull that's bashed in clearly uh, with, and it has sort of like eating uh, marks and, and uh, what would you say? Evidence of culinary preparation. And then we mm -hmm. find it together with other food garbage. Uh, that interestingly, you know, and this is where you get into kind of like, oh, you know, this always is a very shaky table that we're sitting at here. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, this is supposedly evidence of the first belief in the soul, right? This mm. is the kind of thing that we look at to say, okay, with it, they're thinking in inside the head, there's uh, some kind of power there that if I eat that, I can get, and maybe you find it in a ritual site, right? And these ritual sites are, Again, I should say very small and, and isolated. They'll be on the mountaintop. They'll be down in a cave, right? In a place where like the whole community can't be there. So it can't be like, oh, they're fostering community cohesion through this. No, that's not. Yeah. Right. No. And, and that sure. wouldn't explain the, the grades of elaborate um, prestige uh, ritual paraphernalia that we find. And that tends to be what the, you know, in a much better world still than our, our world, if the Peter Thiels of that world uh, were, uh, you know, spending all of their, uh, spending all of the excess surplus that they were able to probably exploit their own clans. They're probably exploiting their clan structures to then put into these secret societies, which are more trans-regional. Uh, mm. And they'll also have marks like tattoos or scarification on their bodies in some hidden place uh, to mark that they're a member so that if they travel to a faraway place, they can show that to fellow secret society members and receive special treatment. Listen, Fergal. Yeah. Half of what you're saying is coming up in multiple horror films mm. that I am covering in a upcoming series. <laughs> Ooh. yeah interesting all of this stuff you know uh, you know and what we got to do with this always is like okay actually probably this still exists <laughs> okay <laughs> um 
almost certainly i mean well i know this you know i i went to i went to ivy league schools for my education you know coming from the midwest uh i'm out about this so uh and you know i was an eager little class trader um like i started to talk about that before right and so i was i would go to these parties um very near yasukuni actually there are all kinds of little like think tanky kind of things um mm-hmm. salons they call them and uh you know eh, a lot of it is just kind of people with too much money and time on their hands uh after they retire they do this you know it's like and they and a lot of them really enjoy having like a young donald keen kind of um <laughs> to talk to right so it's like oh you know american white man uh young graduate student is here to talk with us and they they loved that and, um so you know i i dipped into that a little bit and was able to like gauge some attitudes you know of people um didn't witness any anything myself you know but uh there's a different attitude there's a different attitude and i could feel my attitude there's a i could feel my attitude changing and my attitude kind of there's like oh this is how the cool people think you know i mean this really everything from Derrida and Adorno and right the Gabriel Rockhill stuff uh it, it was that way as well that was a kind of shibboleth of course you know can you talk about Heidegger can you talk about Foucault right that's what cool people can talk about and and there's this pseudo sense of like revolutionary possibility around that as if that oh that's the stuff i i had never even heard uh that that i didn't realize that that was a total substitute for like reading marx and lenin until you know yeah after grad school i realized that much later i was like oh okay that's why it's like people used to read marx and lenin and have that feeling about it but this is like some other thing that they stuck in there to make all the intellectuals read right it sure but seems so <laughs> right um so the secret society dynamics are something that i think anyone who has been a social climber or whatever um can relate to you can start to see oh this is how people act here and this is how and there there does begin to be a sense that like oh we on the inside of this thing we don't think about things the same way they do on the outside right mm-hmm. and yeah i I think it was, well, it was really, I mean, I got my job and I was probably one, I'm probably one of the last people on the planet who will ever be hired with tenure. Um, (laughs) So that was really lucky. I got that right as I was sort of having my little conversion. Um, But yeah, I'm talking about this kind of inside outside dynamic and the way that you begin to, um, I was just beginning to lose my liberalism and then uh, along comes Trump, <laughs> and I tried to like flee back into it. Um, I also sort of, um, yeah, I mean, I, I decisively kind of, uh, I mean, my job, as I said, is at a very sleepy university, and I kind of went from a more ambitious track to a less ambitious track somewhat uh, deliberately. But um, you, yeah, in that moment, you know, I took all kinds of red pills, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
yeah, there's something I want to say about maybe there's a kind of political spectrum, four quadrant political spectrum uh, that we can talk about religions, maybe, where like, you know, are you upper class? Are you are you working class would be one question. Um, is it egalitarian? Is it uh, elitist? Is it, am I thinking? Um, and then also, are you uh, militant? Are you red-pilled or not? Right? Mm. So like the red-pilled ruling class are people that are ruling class and they know it and they know that this is all about domination and exploitation and, and everything, right? Yeah. Uh, or are you liberal ruling class, which is what I was, um, your uh, ruling class, or at least aspiring ruling class, and, and you sort of, um, uh, but you still b- believe that there's some kind of good purpose for everything. And there's like, this is all part of a nice, good structure that if we really follow the rules and we really do what it says on the box, then everything will go good, right? And then if you're outside the ruling class, are you an obedient, you know, total believer in uh, the structure and everything? Uh, There's so, yeah, I mean, we can think of all kinds of examples of very propagandized people uh, in each of the countries that we live in, I'm sure. Uh, And then are you a militant or are you militant and you're pursuing worker power, right? Well, then you're red-pilled in the same sort of way. So that's true politically. And one thing that I like to do is translate between all these sets of terminology, right? You know, being dogmatic, being dialectical. What does that mean on a spiritual plane? Mm. Uh, Being liberal, being uh, materialist. What does that mean on a spiritual plane? Uh, And here too, you could, you can definitely see, you know, there's, there's a ruling class spirituality where people know what the game is and then, but what it would be the workers spirituality that are revolutionary, right? That's the question. That I would yeah. Want to well, because the, it looks like more and more the, uh, <clears throat> the upper class spirituality is increasingly like cults that are like tailor made to suit their beliefs. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. More and more, I think things are trending that way, whether or not, you know, they are. Yeah. I mean, nothing really advertises itself as a cult, right? But like, whether it's, you know, in the guise of like a normal Christian church or like a, Mm. I don't know, self-help, you know, organization Mm. or, you know, a study group or what have you. I think that a lot of cults are targeting the upper class, such as it is. Yes, and that is a cult in the in the classic anthropological definition of it, because mm-hmm. a cult is a is a secret society. That's what it is, um, originally, right? It's a, it's a ruling class religion where elites gather um, semi secretly to pursue you know their own s- separate ends, right? And that used to be with with. Uh, you know, I don't know if masonry, Freemasonry, it has all these different sides to it. It has, I think, at, I can't wait to at, hear. In certain times and places, I think, yeah, it would have fit either the upper class or at different points, sort of like a 
striving middle class sort of mm-hmm. nexus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think um, one of the things that Brian Hayden, well, okay. So I want to say uh, one of the limitations of Brian Hayden's discussion is that you uh, he only discusses elite secret societies when in fact there are whole ecosystems of secret societies and counter secret societies. Mm. Uh, and it's never quite clear which one is even the elite one, maybe, you know, and that, and that's another way in which a lot of these indigenous societies are way more democratic and egalitarian because you just have like a, you know, hundred flowers blooming. Right. Yeah. And, uh, they're all going to compete. Nobody's going to get too much power. Right. Even if individually, if one of them did get a ton of power as they uh, as happened uh, in the wake of colonialism, early colonialism. And then that's when the ethnographers come and record it, too. That's another issue. Um, But, yeah, so there's a whole ecosystem. And so I actually would want to advocate a kind of paleo Leninism. If being a Leninist means that, you know, you look at what the ruling class has for their weapons. They have bands of armed men armed with prisons and courts. Uh, well, we want to have uh, a people's army with prisons and courts. We're going to need those. And uh, But actually, before they have the army, that's another thing. Ethnographically, uh, I don't know if there's archaeological evidence, but ethnographically, we have evidence that uh, nascent chiefdoms retain the secret society members as a kind of police force or, you know, some kind of council. Hmm. Right. So that's what they become or an intelligence agency. (laughs) Right. So that can tell us, you know, maybe an update to Leninism would be to think about what kinds of counter secret societies. Well, and that's what a party is, you know, party is a, Originally. Yeah, basically a conspiracy. Uh, I it's mean, a conspiracy. Of course, <laughs> the Illuminati was a good example, right? Of a uh, yeah, that sort of approach where it's like, okay, basically we're going to do our own Jesuit slash Freemasonic thing, but for mm. a specific aim of getting rid of these fucking kings. Oh, and I'm doing this reading of Lars Lee's new translation of what is to be done. Mm. And he is a real weeb for Lenin and retains a lot of, le- of Russian vocabulary in it, mm-hmm. uh, which is really interesting. And one of his, one of his terms there is conspiratia uh, for trade craft is like, yeah, some kind of um, it's, it's awesome. So I think, I, I think, I think you really... mentioned it in an episode that I had just listened to. Actually, I got to write down which hmm. uh, copy that is and get that myself because hmm. it sounds interesting. Yeah, Lenin rediscovered. It's part of this larger book called Lenin Rediscovered. Okay. Uh, and the cosmonaut people have done an audio book of the the book Lenin Rediscovered, but it also has this new translation attached, right? And basically this scholar has read like every party journal in Russia and knows all the debates super well. And that was a great education mm. sort of hear where Lenin is coming from. And the point is basically that there's a new consensus that, um, you know, the kind of 
anti-communist picture was like, oh, Lenin, what is to be done somehow proves that Lenin lost his faith in democracy. And that's where he starts talking about the, the party as the, the vanguard as the separate thing from the workers, right? And that's where he like went wrong according to anti-communist left or whatever. But uh, in fact, no, like th there's, yeah, um, there's this kind of symbiotic relationship that he sees that is not at all borne out uh, by that interpretation. Hmm. Uh, can't recommend that enough. So yeah, that suggests that sort of maybe a, a revol revolutionary worker spirituality should we be drawing on uh, shamanism? You know, you have suggested sometimes, uh, is it possible for like good people to do magic, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I believe in magic, but, I, but um, I do believe, you know, maybe we should be doing psyops. No, should we? well, not because, yeah, there's so much potential for it to go wrong <laughs> right. and sigh up ourselves, you know, I mean, I think, no, we have to be clear, we have to make clarity, we have to critique, we have to, right, um, politicize every discussion, which is what I'm trying to do here, right, like politicize this discussion of religion, what is the class basis of things, and well, I guess, if what you kind take, of thing, I guess if you take the yeah. idea that like magic if you take the view of like, say Alan Moore or something and just say that like, mm. there are rituals which enact mental changes in a person's brain. And those mental yeah. changes have like, have like a physical component to them, like brain chemistry yeah. or pathways or what have you it's doing yeah. something like a bar mitzvah. And I just take that. Cause oh. it's, I mean, just whatever, like a, coming of age ceremony seems to be good for like young men doing like the Navajo ritual where you hang, you um, put a meat hook into your back and hang yourself up for a long time. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> honestly, like young men are stupid. So like something like that probably isn't the dumbest thing they could be doing. Like, you know, you yeah. Could, like, well, and it, it a fosters a tremendous, Yeah, it fosters tremendous loyalty to the community. Uh, right. Yeah. And actually really fierce sense of egalitarianism in uh, non-class societies to have those rituals, to have a cult. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I do think that there is all kinds of like potential for like a much healthier spirituality that could, I mean, who knows, like for all we know, maybe just taking all the land away from churches would just make them good for like a good generation or two. Like there's all kinds of things, mm. you know, like mm. there's a lot of, yeah, you'd have to fight their armies first. I'm sure there's all the, but, but yeah, no, I think um, there has to be, maybe there should be a place for more kind of, um, Cause, cause this is something, so there is a blog of a grad student at Georgetown. That's very interesting in this connection. I mean, he's a, he's a reactionary as, as I, I was going to say it, Brian Hayden ultimately kind of is um, one of these people. He's a Rousseauist in the bad <laughs> way, maybe where it's like um, when he goes on about in the first whole section, the shamans section of shamans, sorcerers and saints. He goes on about the power of 
shamanism in egalitarian societies. And it's really beautiful uh, to hear him talk about that. But then when you get into sorcerers, he's just like, oh, you know, this is the only thing that could be ever, you know, obviously this is just wired into everyone, right? This is the nature mm -hmm. of humanity right here. I mean, he, he is very black pilled ultimately, I, I think, but, but yeah, there's a certain way in which the saint, and he said, I agree with him saying this too, that uh, what is he, he uses this terminology of like, so he talks about industrial society versus whatever, but rather than saying modern, right? Mm. Which again is nice and materialist. Um, but here, would he have said industrial? He, he says um, sort of state religions, maybe, or, or you know, kingdom religions uh, seem almost designed to keep people from actually accessing religious religion traditional religion he makes a point of calling shamanistic religion traditional religion so for him like um having priesthoods right and so on is almost designed to keep any ordinary person from ever accessing any spiritual power and a lot of the time even the priests themselves never have any contact with any actual spiritual spiritual like forces if they exist right you know it's interesting because I'm thinking about the horror films that I recently recorded, right? And so mm. one of them I just did on Halloween 6. <laughs> and I talk about the Matamoros cult in Mexico, where they ah, were doing yeah. human sacrifices and cannibalism, right? Mm. And which standard fare. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because everyone sort of zeroes in on it, this cult doing it on behalf of the cartel mm. but yeah lesser known is the fact that the cult was operating in mexico city among like mexican high society prior to the yeah. cartel period mm. and on the flip side almost like that is like the satanic inversion of just like normal santeria and like voodoo which mm. is very just like egalitarian in the sense that like normal people mm. could engage with it and it was essentially oh, wow. white magic so like yeah there is that interesting idea that like this evil stuff is for yeah. people who are alienated from like normal spirituality yeah maybe so well and i think what hayden would be saying is that they are using um real spiritual power Mm -hmm. uh the the ruling class cult but um that is so the people using real spiritual power would be people you know say we have a kind of worker uh worker power santeria uh right that would be using spiritual power uh just like a people's army is using military power mm -hmm. right and then the ruling class on the other hand with their satanic rituals right uh cannibalism would be typical of that uh as i said i didn't mean to say cannibalism is typical of mexico uh because sure. indeed as i thought right uh it's about a colonial ruling class actually doing this right so they would also be using real spiritual power i think that's what hayden would say yeah about that um 
or the, uh, that's what I say. I'm not going to put his name on that necessarily, but um, where he says <laughs> he that seal the, of approval on Matamoros cult, real spiritual power. <laughs> nah, yeah, I don't know. And he he's really out there, you know. And I mean, maybe he'll be listening to this. I don't know. I haven't heard from him, um, <laughs> but um, I, I have a feeling, you know, like I said in that that episode with Lai Hall, like his actual point, uh, the points that are the most sexy and the most interesting and the most relevant for us are hidden at the end of the book. Yeah. He doesn't really lay the cards out until then. So I think he was, he might've even like not necessarily wanted too much attention from people like us, but uh, too bad. <laughs> too damn bad. <laughs> <laughs> too bad. Um, but what, what he's talking about with like, um, like kingdom religions, priesthood religions are almost a, an antidote to uh, an inoculation against the real thing, an inoculation mm. against actual spiritual experience and power. Um, and it's something that the ruling elites, while practicing their real spirituality, you know, in the in the back rooms of the palace or whatever, and still, you know, drawing on forces, spiritual forces of domination, right? Uh, they concoct priestly religions to to get uh, the masses as much as possible to deactivate their own spiritual power and mm. power to build community, power to yeah uh, yeah build community and and um, share resources among each other and right all the things that a ruling class doesn't want. Yeah, because like the Catholic Church, you know killed like a million people relating to the cathar thing like for a bunch of reasons yeah, including stealing land but they also sure did not want people in touch with god without them as intermediaries mm -hmm. right they really didn't want that exactly exactly yeah that's 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 exactly what i'm getting at and another thing i thought of in connection with that i mean that that's just that's Yakub right there in a way like that's mm. um that's Europe waking up uh for really the first time like the Roman Empire never really cared about Europe they moved the capital to Constantinople and plugged into the Silk Road as fast mm. as they could you know they don't care um and Europe never had any kind of central government and that's why you could make you know you could make every liberal imperialist argument to justify Al-Andalus and the Muslim uh, invasion of uh, Iberia and half of France uh, on the basis of like, this is by far the most developed that Europe had ever been. And, uh, but then, you know, on the fringes of that, you get these people kind of driving back. And also somebody said recently, the Pope probably saw the numbers <laughs> on, the, on the trade in the East and decided to call the, the um, Crusades. Uh, but you can see that as the beginning of the Reconquista, mm. so-called. The Albigensian Crusade is the first, you know, it's flexing these new muscles that are coming into being for the first time ever to have a central political authority in Europe and to begin to build strength. And uh, as you suggested, also intelligence networks mm. for the, the eventual... Uh, so-called Reconquista, and then the real Conquista of uh, the Conquista Conquista of the rest of the world. Interesting. Well, I mean, 
that seems like a good place to end it, I think. It's a nice bow on it. Thank you so much. Um, let's see here. I would recommend people, my my listeners, check out The Kingless Generation, which can I just say, phenomenal title. I wholeheartedly endorse the sentiment and the podcast. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I can't wait. I can't wait to hear uh, the reactions of everybody on the, in the discord community. Right. Oh yeah. That, uh, oh, it's going to be fun. And I can't wait for your upcoming episodes here. <laughs>